This podcast is part of the Batman Universe Podcast Network, hosted by the BatmanUniverse.net. Check out everything related to Batman and the entire Bat family at the BatmanUniverse.net, including news and original content related to comics, movies, television, merchandise, video games, and more. Also, check out some of the other unique podcasts that TBU has to offer. Consider supporting this podcast by becoming a patron on Patreon. Even $1 can go a long way in supporting this content that you enjoy. Look for a link over at thebatmanuniverse.net to offer your support now. And now, on with the show. Gotham City, like any other large metropolis, abounds in girls of all shapes and sizes. Debutantes, nurses, stenographers, and librarians. Gotham City Library, Miss Gordon speaker. Lopez hair removal, this is Jose. Holy transformation. One minute, plain Barbara Gordon, librarian and Commissioner Gordon's daughter. And the next minute, something new has been added. Batgirl, modeled after her idol, Batman. Holy apparition! No, boy, wonder I'm Batgirl. You are no longer alone, Cape Crusader. It took me three years to track down the Jade Gato, and three more to figure out how to steal it. Funny, it only took me ten minutes to figure out how to snatch it back. No matter how you do it, crime doesn't pay girls. Yes, I look perfect. Ice queen, that's what you see. That's what they all expect from me. But it's all shit. Did you use me? You saw the sexy clothes My supermodel pose What did you know? Was I a game to you? Someone gets hurt Sawete Mihinoman Est Stella at Hawk S Back for the Oracle, the Barbara Gordon Podcast, episode 199 for November MMXX. Back for the Oracle is brought to you by Deconstructing Comics to the Bat Poles. Oh, you must be, because that's Robin. Hi, Robin. Yes, Batman and Robin are here, and Tim and Paul are also here to evaluate the Batman TV show that took the nation by storm in 1966. How in the name of Purple Wombats do they To the Bat Poles podcast looks at the writing, the music, the guest stars, how the show fit into its times, and much more. Look for it wherever you get podcasts or at tothebatpoles.libsyn.com. Why, listening to To The Bat Poles even makes Season 3 enjoyable. Gosh, yes, Batman. When you put it that way... Back the Oracle is also brought to you by MileHighComics.com, your new and collectible 
comic bookstore. Mile High Comics has an inventory of over 5 million comics from the bronze, silver, and modern age, and over 100,000 trade paperbacks. If you're not into the vintage stock, that's okay because Mile High Comics also has a subscription service called the New Issue Comics Express, offering discounted price for comics ready to hit the shelves. Examples, nope, I don't have any of that. So if you're looking for vintage back issues or a great modern subscription service, be sure to check out myhighcomics.com. That was probably the worst one I've ever done, but I thought I would try to do it memorized because I thought, my gosh, it's been 199 episodes. Do I have it memorized? It's kind of there, but I still need to work on it. It's kind of like the Apostles' Creed. At some point, you should have it memorized. But the guy that's with me... is well, this is an honor he's been on the show he's done little segments he's called in but he's never been on a full-fledged episode and he really wanted to do this story that we're going to do with birds of prey welcome ian prime himself ian miller well thank you so much <laughs> it is so exciting to be here i remember i mean we've talked about this on your your 10th anniversary special i remember listening to those early episodes about Oracle mentoring Stephanie as Batgirl and <sighs> so long later it's 199. Yeah, yeah, and look at how far we've come where Barbara Gordon needs a mentor herself now. So oh my gosh. You she know, needs I a was, good writer. <laughs> That's what she really needs. That's that is absolutely the truth. You know, I was thinking about you, I was running right before this and I thought, you know what? Years ago I did something and you won a t shirt. Do you remember this? For like a designed Backroll the Oracle t shirt. You got it. I can't remember what it was. It was some sort of raffle that I did. See, you can't even I don't so remember. Now I've never given you the t shirt. It will still happen, I promise you, but I at least want to show you the design. Oh, because it actually does exist. I did have it designed oh, wow. on everything, uh, designed by Jacob wow. Sawyer himself. So that's what it will look like when the T-shirt actually is created and sent to you. That's amazing. Sorry about that, but I thought, hey, he's on. A- well, let's talk about that. Well, I mean, I would not have remembered. So <laughs> I, I remember my guilt-stricken heart remembers uh-huh. that I promised you this T-shirt. I also wanted to, since I just apologized to him, I want to apologize to the listening audience because I felt like I was just really off with episode 198. I felt prepared. I Well, I was prepared when I went into it, but then when I hit record, I just realized like I, I was just not as prepared as I thought I could have been. And when I was editing it, I just thought, man, this is just not the best quality that it could have been. So I do apologize for that, but I guess, you know, hundreds of episodes... <laughs> You might have one bad one. So hopefully, you know, Ian's going to pull up, I think, the quality of the, the show just with his appearance. <laughs> well, I, I listened to it last week, and I, I got to say, you must be your own worst critic, because I, I thought it was a, a quite good episode. Oh, thank you. Oh, man. So I think I'm, I'm so used to now having co-hosts that sometimes when I'm by myself, it's a little it's a little startling. And there's no one to correct me if I'm incorrect. If I say something weird, they can't say, wait back up what what did you actually say so that's kind of like the weird thing and with video it's like unnerving because ooh, you know i'm putting on i i did to myself putting on unedited but you're just like talking to yourself and now someone can watch you so that's always interesting i wonder if i can persuade uh, theo and steph to do video podcast with me i don't know <laughs> if they'd go for it yeah that could be the new era do any of the Batman Universe episode or podcast do video besides me? 
I don't think so. I think we're all audio except gotcha. for you. Just the occasional. I think it yeah. would be nice, but it is, you, you do have to have your podcast hosts, you know, on board because it's not okay to pressure yeah. video appearance unless, yep. I mean, you were very considerate and you asked me and gave me the heads up. And so you'd have to do the same thing for any of the other casts too. Yeah, I think. Absolutely. And at least with video, because I, I always give people the out that, hey, you could just black your screen out and, ha- oh, there's someone coming down the stairs. <laughs> You could just, you try to be so incognito. You could just black your screen out or have an avatar. So there's always, uh, and, and just have that, you would just be audio. So there is that that uh, backup, which I always offer. I did want to talk about the Batman Futures uh, solicitation. Is that what the uh, official is Future called State. here? Future State, yes. Yeah. What is Future State? Could you tell us a little bit about that before I talk about specifically issue number two of uh, the next Batman? Yeah. So Batgirl, sorry, not Batgirl, um, just Future State in general is basically convergence again. Mm. So back in 2015, DC moved um, from New York to California and they hired a whole editorial team and basically a bunch of brand new, not brand new, but new to the titles creators to do two months of stories. They were very complicated stories, but um, Future State's going to be similar. I don't think DC's moving, but they're sort of giving all their creative teams two months to either catch up or plan a bunch of new stuff. And so we're jumping into the future about 10 years. They've said it takes place between 2030 and like 2070. So some of them are going to be really far in the future, some of them just 10 years in the future. And they will explore different aspects of what could happen uh, in the DC universe based on what's currently happening, but Mm. also some new variables thrown in the mix, particularly a new Wonder Woman. So that's the big new character, I think. Would you say that this is in continuity or an out of continuity, kind of like futures end? Like it's a possible future, but it might not be something that we should hold our breath that it'll actually happen. It's a lot more like futures end. So futures end basically took the status quo at the time in September 2014 and extrapolated out four years. So you had, of course, Barbara, she gets married for some reason and then her fiance dies and she goes through the whole becoming like Bane thing. And Stephanie Brown and Cassandra Kane were coming back in Batman Eternal. So Gail Simone brought those in as a potential future group of Batgirls. You also had, you know, the Birds of Prey fighting the League of Assassins. So it was a bunch of bold ideas that you couldn't do in main continuity, but were built on main continuity. And I think that's very much what's happening here. It's not going to be the set in stone future, but it is going to be things that if people like it or if the creators are really excited about it, they will build towards something like that in the future. Okay. So what I want to specifically talk about is, in fact, the next Batman issue number two. And it says also in this issue. So I don't know if it's a short, you know, eight pages or something of, of a, how many pages is this actually? 64. It says also in this issue, Batgirls, Cassandra Kane and Stephanie Brown find themselves in a prison where the magistrate throws heroes and villains alike. What no one knows, though, is that Cassandra was sent there with a mission. And then, of course, there's some Gotham City sirens there. So, I mean, that could get people excited, but it, it's just a bummer that it's just it's possible. It's a possible future continuity, not something that we can 
hold hold our breaths for that it's oh this is in continuity we're having the bat girls it's all coming together what we always wanted a team bat girl but what do you think just about that little solicitation there for that story i think it sounds like a, a fun story i have liked some of what vita ayella the writer for that story uh, has done i haven't read a lot of their work but i've read a couple things that i thought were quite good um, Aniki, the artist, actually did the the second backup for Batgirl 50. So we'll talk about her work today later. I think, I mean, this is clearly building off of the Joker War Zone, which was released um, end of last month, which your uh, great betrayer joined us on the Batman Universe podcast to uh, review. And that had Stephanie and Cassandra taking the bat symbols onto their costumes again as a symbol of hope. And I thought that was very much setting the stage for the next step of Stephanie and Cassandra's place in the Batman universe. And I'm hoping that this backup story is the herald of the, what they're going to do with Batgirl, the Batgirl characters in March when the the main line comes back. Now we don't know for sure. uh, And the rumors are that Stephanie, Cassandra and Barbara are all going to be showing up in the Batman title by James Tynan. So we don't know for sure what's going to happen, but I mean, they've cut so many titles. They've cut Batgirl, they've cut Batman and the Outsiders, they've cut Young Justice and Teen Titans and Batman Beyond. All these titles are ending. So they're going to have new titles coming up. And I think a lot of us are hoping that this backup is going to lead into uh, a new Batgirls title in the main line. And I would be very excited about that. I mean, I'm excited about this too. Yeah, I mean, clearly, we're going to talk about it. We're going to hash it out and rage about it. But 50 didn't really leave us with much, with a, with a slight exception, which we can, of course, talk about. But it is interesting that all of this is, is coming into Batman, Batman's title. So, like I said, yeah, it might be something that I'll have to start checking out once again. But thank well, you for I, all that. I wanted uh, to mention that I think it's exciting that... Um, Stephanie and Cassandra are going to be in Batman because even though it's a backup story, so it's not a full series, it's in Batman and Batman's the biggest selling title DC has. So there's Mm going to be so many more people who have a chance to see this than if it were just the future state Batgirl title. So I Mm -hmm. think that's actually a really cool move on DC's part. Yeah, and hopefully editorial keeps a better and closer (laughs) eye on things that are being written. We we very much hope that. Yeah. But it does look, I mean, I, I saw Mariko Tamaki is one of the writers on one of the time. I mean, it seems like they have a good slate of artists, uh, both writer and, and pencilers coming up on, on those books. So it could be something to might be worthwhile to check out for sure. Okay, well, the next thing, I, I haven't talked to you about this, but of course, this is our Find Your Joy segment, which is also known as Shag's Mac and Cheese of Comfort and Joy. What has been giving you joy in these times, Ian, uh, whether it was in the past, what were you doing when quarantine was really in full force, or what are you doing now that, that you know, when it's just hard to get through the day, what, what do you do that brings you some joy? So um, a couple things. The last time I was uh, fortunate to be on your cast, we actually talked about Emma. And I recently rewatched that with my brother and sister-in-law. 
and I loved it just as much this time. It's a fantastic movie based on one of my favorite novels. So Jane Austen's Emma is definitely a big thing giving me joy. And I also just finished uh, my reread of Stephanie Brown's Batgirl run, which mm-hmm. I've been posting on Twitter. And that was fantastic. Just so many great character moments and arcs. And of course, great art by Dustin Nguyen and so many others. Yep. And now that I'm done with that, I've actually been reading... Uh, Hawkman oh. by Robert Vendetti. Now that series is also ending, but I've been I'm planning to read one issue every day until the final issue releases. So it's all like one big story in my mm-hmm. head, and that's it's a it's not a series I ever thought I would like, but I was just bored on DC Universe the other day and checked it out, and I fell in love with it. I never would have thought I would love a man with a hawk wing, <laughs> but uh, I do. He's awesome. So after reading Stephanie Brown's run, what would you say would this be your second time reading it through maybe or third? Oh, Stephanie's? Oh, yeah. goodness. At least 10th. I've oh, read tenth. it okay. a lot of, I mean, I had to reread it when I did the Steph Wiki updates and I've reread it at least three times just for fun. Plus the first time I read it. So okay. between five and 10. Okay, so now this makes this question even more interesting. Did you catch anything new or did you have any new feelings reading it this particular time? Let's see. I did notice a couple things. Um, I noticed a couple of places where I think Brian Q. Miller was still getting used to writing comics rather than TV. So there are a couple places where the dialogue didn't quite match up to an action. But that was quickly ironed out. And I'd say by issue three, it was smooth sailing. I also really noticed sort of the structure of the issue. So the first year of the book is all about Steph proving herself first to herself, then to Babs, and then to Dick and Damien, and then to Tim. And then finally, she the last arc in the first year is the flood where she saves the whole city. So there was that really cool building of relationships that she gets through in the first year. And I think that's the biggest thing I noticed this time through. That's great. It's It's been a while since I have read that. And it's something I, yeah, I need to recheck out because that is... Well, aren't you uh, going to, or maybe you already did talk to Brian Q. Miller for your episode 200. Yes, I will talk to Brian Q. Miller about, but yeah, that, that was all the memories were coming back and flooding back, you know, pun intended, when I, <laughs> when I was talking to him about that. But yeah, it's about time. And I'm supposed to come on Everybody Loves a Drake and talk about Damien, who happens to be my favorite Robin. And I definitely know that there is an issue in Batgirl that I want to spotlight because that's one of the reasons why I love him is his relationship with with Steph, as you know, since I was on that chipper-related little segment that you guys did over at the Batman Universe. So. Oh, yeah. So my, what I've been, I was trying to think of, of different things that because TV I've mentioned and video games. So I thought something I've not talked about is that during my job, it can get really busy with patients. But between patients or in lulls, it's really, it's quite boring. So that's why I can read a lot. And I've also been watching... English football, uh, women specifically. And a co- I guess it was last year I latched on to Arsenal being my my favorite team. But recently, and I warned Alan about this. I said, Alan, I may betray you tonight. And he said, this is interesting, talking to someone else about Tess, complimenting Reed Richards, rooting against Arsenal. So he kind of had it. I was, I'm not rooting against Arsenal, but I will say that I also am now a fan of Manchester City. And it's mainly because my favorite player, I think, in England, even though I really like Leah Williamson on Arsenal, is Ellen White. I just, 
I, I call her my my dear Ellen White, and I, so it's just been fun to to watch them as well. So I go back and forth watching games on FA Player. So that's been fun. But I've betrayed Alan. I think he's heartbroken over it. And I said, I'll just have to find a new chief hairstylist correspondent. And he said that I crossed the line when I said that. So, so anyway, so that's what's been certainly giving me some joy during the day, during the day. Okay, so here we are. We're going into the main event here. Now, there are no quickies here folks, because we've got a lot to cover anyways. And this was the arc that Ian really wanted to do when I asked him, what would you want to be on for? He mentioned this particular arc. So we're going to cover Birds of Prey issues 31 through 35. So more than I usually do, but it's all worthwhile. And Ian's going to give us all the recaps of these. And then I think we'll tackle them individually. Just that's how my notes are, just talking about each of them and, and those gorgeous covers, because now we're going to have Phil Noto into the uh, picture. So, Ian, you can take it away as we all listen to you. Well, thank you. And I wanted to mention that on the DC fandom or wiki, they didn't have summaries for these. And when Stella first approached me, this is months and months ago, I noticed that there weren't summaries. So I decided to kill two birds with one stone <laughs> and write the show notes for this and update the wiki. So all of the stuff that I'm reading is from the wiki, but I wrote it myself. Oh, man, that's great. So if there's a future podcast that covers this and they said, I use the DC wiki, then it's you. That's right. Well, I mean, you should check the edit history because someone might have come in after oh, that. But that's true. The, the core of it is all me. All right. So issue number 31, The Big Romance. Um, do you want me to do credits too? Or? Oh, please. Yeah. Do, I, do they change at all? Uh, yeah, I they think do. artists actually, do actually. Yeah. Yeah. There's three different artists for the arc. So this ar- issue is by artist uh, penciler Mike McDonald, inker Rodney Ramos, colorist Gloria Vasquez, and digital chameleon. Uh, all of these issues are written by Chuck Dixon and... Let's see. Editors are Matt Idelson and Nachi Castro. And I believe that those don't change. So we're just going to go with different artists for the other issues. Uh, And the cover for this one is by J.G. Jones. The Big Romance. Jason Bard, in a pastiche of old, hard-boiled detective style, narrates a visit from Babs. But she punctures his 1930s and 40s movie obsession, telling him their relationship can't move forward. But she has a job for him. Tailing Dinah. The chase starting a thousand years ago. At a beach vacation area, Jason recognizes Dinah from a previous adventure while still musing on his feelings for Babs and tries to approach subtly, but fails miserably when Dinah recognizes him. They exchange please greetings. Dinah thrilled with his returned vision and they head off to catch up. Jason relates Babs slamming the door on a romance between them and Dinah shares news of a mysterious new man in her life. But that man's employees call her away to dinner, and the three men move in to attack him. He takes them out with some difficulty and surmises that the attack is connected to Dinah somehow. Calling Babs up, he demands more information, and she says Dinah's time travel romance left her vulnerable. But she doesn't feel able to help her partner directly. The next day, Jason takes the audiovisual gear Babs sent him on his surveillance mission, starting with a scuba exploration to put a bug on Dinah's man's ship. But he's attacked by underwater muscle, much more dangerous than the thugs last night, including a dangerous woman who cuts his oxygen line. He manages to surface, but is captured by the man revealed as none other than Raz al Ghul, who orders his men 
to kill Jason. Birds of Prey, issue 32, penciled again by Mike McDonald, inked by Rodney Ramos. This one's called The Stray. Dinah comes on deck of Roz's boat and stops Jason's murder, but calls Roz by the name Raymond. Roz pretends he wasn't going to kill Jason, and Dinah takes him ashore, as Babs freaks out about Roz being her new boyfriend. Dinah deduces that Babs sent Jason and grabs his audiovisual gear to talk to her partner directly. Babs reveals Roz's identity, but Dinah rejects the information, having formed a deech attachment to her paramour. However, the seed is planted, and she asks Roz if he's hiding anything, which he denies and attempts to woo her further with sentimental words. Babs orders Jason to leave for his own safety, as Roz and Talia discuss the threat Bane poses to his Lazarus pits, wondering if Dinah is another threat. Babs helps Jason escape his pursuers into an old castle, where they trick the assassins into falling through weak flooring into the moat, then take out the remaining two with Jason's cane. With Jason on his way to safety, Dinah and Talia chat on Roz's boat about Dinah's romance. Issue number 33, penciled this time by regular series penciler Butch Jackson Geis, cover now by Phil Noto. This one's called The Courtship. Dinah swims around Roz's boat in the Caribbean. Roz kills a moray eel to protect her, then voices his concern when they return to the boat. He tells her that this area used to be inhabited by Toltec cultists, which he both created over 700 years ago, then destroyed 500 years ago, a fact he withholds from Dinah. They dress for dinner, and Talia joins the couple. Roz tells Dinah he wishes to marry her and father a son, causing her to leave in distress. He follows her, and she reveals that she cannot have children, but he says he can make her whole again, which again distresses her, and she rushes away yet again. Talia attacks Roz in jealousy for his desire for a son after her lifetime of service. Through her cabin door, Roz tells her there's much about him she does not know, including the power to heal her childbearing ability, which causes a darker suspicion. Talia reconciles with Roz, and he assures her that she will never be replaced. They muse about Bane's war with Roz, and again ask whether Dinah will pose a similar threat. That night, Dinah sneaks about the boat, following Roz's men through the water, finding Roz himself at the Lazarus Pit, which he gloats about his plan to heal her in its chemicals. She is captured by Ubu and brought before Roz, who tells of all the blood he's spilt to protect the secret of this pit from the world. She rejects him and their relationship, causing him to say she cannot leave with his secrets alive. In the meantime, Babs briefs four agents on her rescue mission for Dinah, Blue Beetle, Power Girl, Militia, and Honey. Issue 34, uh, penciled again by Butch Geis, cover again by Phil Noto. Part 4, The Heartbreaker. Dinah continues to reject Roz, and he resolves to throw her in the pit unwillingly, planning to use her lengthened lifespan to brainwash her into loving him. Aboard the Blue Beetle's bug airship, Babs directs her team, including a very cranky Power Girl. As Roz's men fire heavy ordnance at the approaching heroes, Power Girl and Militia soak up the damage, and the oncoming forces cause Roz to start to retreat, including killing Dinah. <gasps> As her heavy hitters distract the might of the League of Assassins, Babs and Beetle prepare to infiltrate the pit. Babs determined to save Dinah herself. Meanwhile, Dinah battles for her life against the massive and vicious Ubu. Power Girl and a militia clean up Roz's forces, and Power Girl says she has to go. Just as Ubu is about to stomp Dinah's head in, he is knocked aside by the falling of the structure around the pit, and Babs and Beetle arrive. Dinah is too badly injured to survive. Broken back, punctured lung, and Babs insists on putting her in the pit to save her life 
despite Dinah's hope that she could use it to walk again herself. Once Beetle throws Dinah in, Babs realizes too late that the healed and Lazarus Pit insane Dinah will also have her canary cry, finally healed after so many years. And Dinah emerges from the toxic liquid, screaming. Our final issue is uh, number 35. It is penciled this time by William Rosado, inked by Keith Champagne. And the cover is again by Phil Noto. The final issue is called The Shout. Outside the temple, Militia and Power Girl reel under the sonic assault of the canary cry. While inside, Bab tries to reason with her friend. Dinah, in the grip of pit madness, attacks her friends, and Babs is forced to knock her out with an electric shock. Babs and Beetle rush out of the collapsing temple, and Babs orders Power Girl and Militia to stop the escaping Roz and Talia. Militia complies, sinking the boat, but Power Girl resists because of her anger at Oracle. Meanwhile, Roz and Talia actually escape aboard a secret submarine, Roz mourning the loss of his love, Dinah. (laughs) Perhaps I should say, love in quotations. (laughs) Beetle and Babs barely make it outside, meeting Militia and Power Girl. Babs conceals her identity, claiming to be an employee of Oracle. And Militia says she should get a suit like his, which replaces his missing limbs. Mm. But Babs rejects his offer. Admiring her spirit, Militia leaves, reminding Babs to make sure to pay him. Power Girl leaves bitterly, despite Babs' attempt to reconcile. And Beetle and Babs take the still unconscious Dinah aboard the bug to fly home. A week later, a recovered Dinah asks why she hasn't gotten a new mission. This sets off an argument between the two, as Babs's worries about Dinah's mental state after all the tragic adventures she's been on, and Dinah thanks Babs for saving her life and giving up the chance to walk again. They embrace, just as Nightwing arrives. Dinah senses the romantic tension, leaves, and Babs <laughs> and Dick kiss passionately. At Cordtronics, Ted arrives, blowing off Oracle's attempts to reach him, and rejects Quam Industries' attempt to buy his company, leading the company to pursue assassination instead. Dick wakes up in the clock tower, getting no response from Babs, and walks into her control room to find a full array of surveillance on the Joker at the Slab Prison, prelude to the Last Laugh crossover. Mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. Yeah, let me just say, I didn't think he'd be sleeping on the couch, but that's... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's... It is what it is. Thank you so much for that. I appreciate it. I always appreciate when people do recaps for me. Okay, so I do want to talk about each of the covers. I don't have digital versions of these, so I'll you know just show it to the to the camera so that we can uh, talk about it a bit. But what do you think about this one here? The mysterious man. There's shadows over his face so we don't necessarily know who it is it see you know subtitle the big romance it does seem really romantic what do you think about this particular cover for 31 well i i love the fact that all these covers have the same con- composition with the the circle around yep. the figure and dine is very central in most mm-hmm. of these covers i'm a huge fan of jg jones's art he's got a very painterly sort of like arthur rackham style He's done a lot of Tolkien fan art for Lord of the Rings fans. And he also did a lot of Wonder Woman with Greg Rucka. And so he really renders Dinah in a very romantic way, which befits the the lettering of the big romance. I I like the, I mean, this one just strikes me at how lush the colors and the lines are. Her hair is waving like that. And you've got the the little scroll work around the circle. Mm -hmm. It just 
And one of the things I love about this arc is that it starts off with all this romantic talk, but then the real purpose of the arc is revealed in the final cover. So mm-hmm. I think that's just a really cool build. Yeah. And, and boy, does it, it takes a turn quickly. I mean, when she rejects him, he's like, it's not your decision as if you had a choice. Oh boy. Well, let's also talk about the internal art. And of course, you know, because of professor Allen, my chief hairstyle correspondent, I do have to comment about how Babs is drawn here. And it's interesting. I will say that it is inconsistent throughout, especially her glasses, which are oval. I don't know if this is going to work. And sometimes they're on her face and sometimes they aren't. But for the most part, a pretty standard hairstyle, pretty red, no bangs, uh, shoulder length. So I at least wanted to comment on that. But what do you think about the art overall, since we do switch art styles and artists throughout this run, this arc? So I would say that all three artists, um, Mike McDonald, Butch Geis, and William Rosado are good. I have a strong preference for Butch Geis just because I think he has the best handle on the characters. And yeah, agreed. I think he is the most appealing of the artists. But I didn't have a real problem with any of the artists throughout. Um, mm-hmm. I just say what that, that Butch Geis stood out the most to me. The rest of them were just very good instead of being... Uh, noticeable. Yeah, I would certainly agree with the, the all those comments. And then, you know, when I was looking at 35, it feels slightly inconsistent with, with just with s- some of the depictions of Oracle. And well, I guess I just looking at a redhead. I'm like, that doesn't look like Oracle at all. It's, it's not. It's a receptionist. I don't know if it's the inking. The inking is pretty heavy at times in 35, at least in my opinion feels like some of the lines on the ladies are very heavy, especially when it's the the Dinah and Barbara scene. But so that that might be my least favorite. I don't know. It just looks like somebody else to me. Does it look like Dinah? <laughs> yeah, I- I'd agree that the, the final issue by William Rosado looks the least consistent with yeah. the other two artists of the arc. Yeah. Okay, well, I'll continue to comment about hair and glasses as we continue on. But let's talk about 31. So we'll tackle each of them and then as a whole, this this arc. First off, we've got Jason. Jason is our narrator. He is our focal person. He is the man in the field as Oracle is in the chair behind this. How does it, does it work? Does it work to have him? Did you enjoy having him as our mouthpiece? I do enjoy him for these two issues. I'm glad he wasn't like, the, the narrator for the whole arc, because the arc is about Dinah and Babs. It's very much a Babs and Dinah relationship mm-hmm. arc. So I wouldn't have liked it if he was the narrator all throughout, but it was a really fun little bit um, where he's pretending to be like, you know, Humphrey Bogart. In yeah. the beginning. I thought that was yep. hilarious. I want to comment here because this is a very Jason Bard heavy episode. We've got mm-hmm. Jason Bard oh. in these two issues yeah. and Jason Bard in issue number 50 of the main series right now. Yep. And I wanted to, to highlight a contrast. This Jason Bard, who is sure, and he's a disabled person, but he's fighting through and, and just not accepting uh, you know, pity from other people. He's just you know, respecting himself and trying to make his way in the world. Uh, and, you know, he's got this this crush on Babs, but when he tur- she turns him down, he doesn't, you know, go into a big funk. He's just a little sad. And that continues because she's an amazing woman. But, like, he, he's a he's a self-starter. He, he's an impressive man, I think. I like this Jason, and this is the reason why I, in all my letters to you over the, 
the last year as you've had to deal with the fact that Jason and Babs are dating in the main series. That's why I'm rooting for them. I, I do ship Dick and Babs as the final ship, but I like this relationship they have here in this classic Birds of Prey issue. And I hope that a better writer could take what they're doing and sort of build it similar to this relationship. Yeah, I would agree. I just feel like this character, Jason Bard, and even because I feel like if I read this, when I read this, I have nostalgic feelings towards the Bronze Age. (laughs) Jason Bard, I feel like there's lots of connection. He actually has character. Whereas the one that we have in Batgirl has a lack of character and it seems like he is molded around how Barbara is portrayed. So it's like whatever she's doing, that's how we're going to write him. And I just feel like, unfortunately, as much as I like Jason Bard, I, I don't like the modern interpretation of him. And that really started with Batman and Robin Eternal anyways, where he came on pretty villainous. Even We're, we're trying to shove that under the, the rug right now. But yeah, I, I wholeheartedly uh, agree with you there. And it's, yeah, it's hard. I don't know if it's this one or the next. Uh, it's the next one that we find out that he was left at the altar. I mean, that was just like, oh, that's so sad. But yeah, go, going back to him as narrator, did you, well, I guess you basically answered it, didn't you? That you liked that he was in, in these two issues, but you know, it's a, it's a Barbara and Dinah story. Yeah, I agree. I mean, once he started off with, I wondered when you'd roll into my office, I thought, oh, what's happening here? It was, it was so film noir, which I, that's a, a favorite genre of mine. I, I think he really keeps it up and it's, He's a good point person to have, though it is interesting that she picks him. I think that'll be my next question. There is this commonality between them because he did meet up with Dinah at, randomly during a mission. And then Babs, of course, knows him. So it works out. But he wouldn't have been necessarily my first choice. Why do you think Barbara goes to him to be the agent in the field and not someone else? Because we do, we see that she has other people like Boo Beetle. And I probably won't say Karen because she doesn't really like it, but she has other agents that she could use. Why go to Jason for this particular mission? Well, I think Oracle is always doing multiple things at a time, which is one of the reasons I love her character. She's very uh, multi-plan. She's never mono-plan. So I think here she's doing two things. One, she's committed to a relationship with with Nightwing right now. So she wants to really draw boundaries uh, and let Jason know in an honest way where they are. She doesn't want to leave him hanging. She doesn't want to play with his heart. So I think that's one reason she's using him, um, because it gives her the chance to just tell him that they're not going to have a future right now. And the other thing is, Jason is really good at infiltration. Blue Beetle, you know, I think we know from the early issues of, uh, of Birds of Prey that he's not great at infiltration. He's just so himself. He, he doesn't blend in. He, he's just very visible. Jason can, can disappear. He can observe from a distance. He can fit in and be observant. I mean, he's a classic private eye. So I think that's really why they wanted to use Jason as this specific field agent at the beginning. Yeah, I would agree. I think it's his quiet infiltration, whereas other people might be louder for sure. But she doesn't give him much info on what's happening. Is it believable that... Well, I'll save that second question. But is that poor form on her side that she doesn't give him more information of this, you know, Dinah's with this guy. It's a little shady. I don't, you know, but she only gives him a piece and he's got to discover it on his own and then ask, why didn't you tell me more? What do you think about that? 
Well, I don't think Dinah... I mean, clearly Babs didn't know that it was Roz at the beginning. So I think if she'd known it was Roz, she might have sent more backup because, mm. you know, League of Assassins is out <laughs> of Jason's weight class, as we see. Yeah. But I think she was just worried about Dinah's heart and mm. she was hoping that ba- uh, Jason being very observant could give her information about Dinah without necessarily having to interfere with Dinah's life. Like she didn't ever intend Jason to have to see and meet Dinah. Mm. I think that it's, it is a flaw. Uh, another reason I love Oracle is she is a flawed character. She's a character who tries to guard her heart by making some decisions to keep things private that maybe should be shared more with people she trusts. And I would say this is an instance of that, but it's a very understandable instance because she, she really wants to try and walk a line between respecting Dinah as an adult, but also being really concerned because she's been through so much recently. I mean, this has been a really action-packed last year of Birds of Prey. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah, I was just looking at, I enjoy that simile that he says, you're treating me like a mushroom here, Barb, as she's working out. And she says, excuse me, keeping me in the dark and feeding me manure. Yeah. And she she does say that, you know, it's stupid that she didn't tell him that it was Dinah. And he rec- he feels like he recognizes her, but of course he didn't have the use of his eyes when he was first with Dinah. So I think that's why it takes him a, a little bit. But there is one point, I was trying to find it, where she actually says that it's not how her and Dinah's partnership works. I'm trying to find where this is. Do you remember this? I'm going to have to flip through. Yeah, I remember that line, but I don't remember if it was in this issue or the next one. I, I mean, this, honestly, the, the end of this issue is really the first time where we get to see Dinah and Babs have a, a normal conversation for yeah. a while, um, which is one of the reasons I love this, this, um, this arc, because I, I share you and Carolyn's sort of feeling like Babs and Dinah finally meet in Hunt for Oracle, but then they never really yeah. get to hang out. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the first times you really get to see them hanging out. And so mm-hmm. that's one of the reasons I love this arc. Absolutely. I did find it wasn't here. It's the same scene as the mushroom scene. <laughs> and he asks, why am I following her? She says, I'm worried about her. And then so call her and tell her that. Dinah and I don't have that kind of partnership. And I, I don't know. I guess maybe because it's the beginnings of their relationship. It could be believable. And also, I think I'm doing myself in injustice because I'm doing those quickies. And so I'm seeing them have a sleepover in Nightwing and do all that stuff. And that's, you know, kind of concurrently, but it, it's not necessarily. Ha- so I think it's kind of all tumbled in my mind, but I feel like they've stepped forward a bit that she can't ask about that. I mean, in the beginning, absolutely. I would have totally agreed with that, but I feel like they've, they've pushed forward a bit, but it, it is interesting that it, it says she's coming, or Bar- Barbara says she's coming off a relationship that ended strangely, which is, of course, Hunky Hunkerson from the Viking story. And I did wonder how she and Dr. Midnight split up because she was dating him in JSA. And I did ask Shagalicious, and he, he wasn't quite sure about the details, but he, that Dr. Midnight wasn't mentioned in this one. Well, something I would I would say in terms of my view of the trajectory of their relationship is this arc has... The overall purpose, of course, of focusing on Dinah and what happens later in the, the arc. But it also really is designed to push Babs and Dinah to the next level of their relationship. And I think that's because Dixon didn't want to leave it to off-panel end. He wanted mm-hmm. to show us Babs being hesitant at the beginning on these more emotional and, and private things that she doesn't know if Dinah will welcome her advice of. And at the end of the issue, they have that heart-to-heart con 
conversation. And I think that is really the next step of their relationship. So I think it's trying to avoid off panel land and show the natural growth into closer friends. Absolutely. Yeah. And and now that there's a face to the voice, I think it makes things more difficult because I think she could potentially verbally, you know, have verbal diarrhea of emotions and things that she's going through because she's just talking to somebody. But now that they physically met, I think it's like, oh, this is new and it's it's more intimate. So I yeah, I totally agree with you. Anything else on issue 31 specifically? No, I think we covered everything from this issue. Okay. So then we have 32. So I was pumped to see the first Noto cover. So let's talk about that first. <laughs> oh, so, yes. Yeah, we've got, <laughs> I'm going to call him Raish, but Raish and Dino with like a who me kind of expression <laughs> on the front. And then in the background, we have Talia on the, what is that, the right and a floating head. Carolyn always knows of Barbara in the background there, kind of muted color, whereas uh, Raish and Dinah are color. So, yeah, what do you think? He's coming out. He's coming out hot. Are you a fan of Noto and his style? Oh, yes. I'm a huge fan of Noto. I think this is a fantastic cover, partly because uh, he keeps that same circular um, Mm -hmm. design motif with his own touches of the sort of almost digital, whereas the last one was very sort of romantic painting and ornate scroll. This is sort of digital with the sticking out things, but he gives Dinah such personality. (laughs) Like look at that expression. She's just like full of mischief and sass, which is perfect Dinah. Yeah, absolutely. And then of course we can talk about the, the hair. I know the glasses are different, I think, or it's in 33 that the glasses are different, but hair wise, I would say similar, similar to, well, she does have a fancy hairstyle where it's kind of braided coming through. Oh. But yeah, it looks like her glasses are rectangular now. See the inconsistency? <laughs> Just pick a style, people. And, and this is even it. the same penciler, so I don't know why they changed the I bottle. I don't know. But even if you look down two panels, it looks like she has rounded glasses. So it's kind of, I don't know what's happening. Just pick a style, people. Okay. So Raish mentions that Talia has been happier ever since Dinah's arrival. Do you think that it's just due to Talia's devotion to him that Raish is happy and therefore Talia is happy? Or is there another reason that she might like Dinah? I found that an interesting comment he made. Talia is such a hard character for me to read. Okay. She's so totally devoted to her father that it's really hard for me to figure out what she actually wants in most cases and then of course you get into batman incorporated by grant morrison and she Mm. just goes completely crazy and it's very she's just always been a really hard character for me to read so i i don't know i I can't really answer what i think she's doing she's very inscrutable yeah i i can only guess i think part of it might be her devotion to her father that race is happy and therefore i'm happy i think I don't know what issue it was. It was certainly before the Vikings where she saw Dinah really stick it to Bane. I think there might be a mutual or at least an admiration on Talia's part that this is a strong female because Talia is surrounded by men. I don't think there are any other females in the League of Assassins. You know, her sister, I suppose, Nissa, but she's not really around right now. But it's just her. It's Ubu. It's Raish. It's all these male assassins. And so to have another female potentially by her side that is capable that stood up to Bane whereas Talia was certainly someone that would tried to do that and I think she did it okay but as well 
But that makes it interesting. This quote makes it interesting, if only because in a later issue, there's a real 180 with how Talia treats her. So I don't know if that's a weird inconsistency or it's just like you say, she is a bit of an enigma. So who knows what her motivations are. But I'm going to say that it is devotion to Raish and then also... Maybe it's just great to have another female around here. <laughs> so, which reminds me of uh, an Uncharted story, the, the video game, when Claudia Black came on for part two, the woman who plays Elena, whose name I've now, uh, I've forgotten her name. She like ran up to her and said, finally, another woman. Uh, so it's kind of like that. I feel like if you're just surrounded by a boys club, maybe you're just excited for another woman, but that's, who knows? Okay, so here we actually have Jason and Babs, I think, really working together, actually on a mission. Does it feel like classic Birds of Prey to you? Is it different because he is a man? What do you think about this whole field operative? And Because I feel like we're really getting into it this time, whereas the other issue, it's kind of like, oh, we're just investigating, but now there's action involved. I'd say Oracle manning the the satellite and having all that knowledge, you know, the the floorboards and the the architecture. That's classic Birds of Prey. Again, I think that Jason fits into the birds, but I wouldn't call him a bird. Okay. So he's sort of like a friend of the birds. Okay. Um, I'm very much on your side in terms of I think that the birds are all women. And that doesn't mean they can't have male allies. It can't doesn't mean they can't work with men. But the birds are women. Yeah. At least I think that was your position. I think so. Yeah. When, when I think to, I guess later in this run, right. With Gail Simone and then with her, uh, what was that? Volume two, I suppose also had a couple men. Oh yeah. Hawk was involved. Oh, Hawk. Oh, this is bringing back memories. Oh man. alive. <laughs> yeah. No, I, that's, I mean the, yeah, I just feel like it's a, it's a badass all women team. I, I think it's it's something that is unique, and why can't it be? But mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah, agrees. So, yeah, so side agent that we have, and he. I think they work well together. I mean, he certainly has his questions, especially you know how does she have all this information and everything. But he's a capable guy. I think it 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 really fits his character. I think he does a good job. Now, I do have to say this panel is very startling, especially if you're a member of PETA, which I'm not. But, uh, of course, the sheep. And then at the end, it was a bunch of sheep for the the listeners there. It does say... Well, it was specifically a bunch of sheep that he drove into with a car. Yes, he did drive through them. And at the very end, it says, to be continued, please note no sheep were harmed in the making of this comic book, which I thought was really... It was cute. It was cute and fun. So I do appreciate Chuck Dixon and his humor. Yep. I thought that whole action scene was just classic. Yeah, it certainly was. Very, you know, Mission Impossible or James Bond. Yeah. The the classic car chase scene. And I did mention this before, but this was the issue that we find out that Jason was actually left at the altar with Barbara. So just to know how serious that relationship had gotten. Uh, Anything else on 32 that you want to talk about? Not much. Uh, It's... I mean, it's all building. This is still, yes. it's still in the romance phase. It mm. hasn't quite revealed the, uh, the ultimate end. And I will, I think my overall, because there is something that happens in this, the beginning of this, that I, I don't want to ignore that Raish, well, Ubu has Jason in his clutches, but I want to save that for like an overall question about Dinah and her character. Okay, so we are moving on to 33. Now we've got Carolyn Knows cover again because you have a floating Barbara head. Boop, boop, boop. 
You also have Blue Beetle, of course, and then the Oracle symbol. And then it looks like it's a shield, doesn't it? A shield and light is cracking through the shield almost. And then, of Either course, a shield or maybe like a portal, a door or something yeah, opening. You could be right, especially since it does take place in kind of a temple. Yeah, so yeah. It could potentially be. And then a full-bodied Dinah there. So uh, any thoughts, any specific thoughts on this cover? I mean, the... The light, I mean, this is the issue where you really start to see where the arc is going. Mm-hmm. So the light shining through is really indicative of that to me. And, of course, Dinah just looking really strong. I mean, those legs yeah. look like they could kick the head off a, a yeah. bear or something. It's just fantastic, mm-hmm. the composition. And I just think that Noto has so much personality because you have Babs with her glasses slightly pulled down. So that gives her an expression. And then her eyebrows have a little quirk to them. I mean, just, he has these great faces that he does that I think are what set him apart from a lot of artists who sort of draw the beautiful face instead of giving it a personality. Yeah. Now I can totally understand why he did it. Doesn't want it to look busy. He also doesn't have a lot of room, but he chooses blue beetle, even though there are of course other people on that mission. It seems like a wise choice. Obviously, she's been on a mission with him before. There was some flirtation there as well. But do you feel like, oh, it is a bit strange because it's not like he's, well, I guess he is highlighted over the others. But do you have any, like, thoughts on, oh, well, what about all the other militia and Honey and Karen? A.K. Power Girl. I would say that there's a there's a connection with Beetle because of his history with the title that I think made them... I don't know if this was his choice or if this is editorial, but it, it felt logical to me that he'd be the one who'd be on here. And like Militia and Honey are really just, you know, there for, for muscle. And Karen, of course, will get her own story much later in this, mm, this arc. Yep. Not this run by Dixon. That was one of his final stories that he told. And he's sowing the seeds. I mean, we can talk about that now, but there's tension every time Power Girl is in the same space as... Barbara. And even if Barbara is off and Barbara is communicating with someone, which she does, she communicates with militia and she's got these thought bubbles of like mean things basically. So it's really interesting that how much he has sowed the seeds of this. Um, I just feel like that it's a smart, a smart writer. And now modern times, modern times, these seeds are sown and I'm thinking birds of prey, new 52 seeds are sown and I'm waiting, I'm waiting. And then it never happens. Oh my goodness. That last cliffhanger of the first arc. Yeah. Never addressed. I know. That's what I'm saying. How did that happen? Yes. But here at least, you know, we can trust that Chuck Dixon, he's doing this for a reason. Uh, All these little details, which I, I, really appreciate but we're getting a little bit more of like oh what's happened that has made this so bad but we yeah we won't know until a little bit farther on okay i think i thought it was this one that she had different glasses but i can't uh i can't find it unless it was another one eyeglass well she's barely in this issue this is such a heavy dino yeah it's heavy dino i can't i thought i had seen some that looked like aviator style but we can, uh, maybe I'll find it, maybe I won't. But here we go. Okay. First of all, interesting outfits for dinner. I don't know if you caught on to that. Carolyn would certainly catch on to it. I'm trying to see if I can pull up a uh, pet. It's just, what are you wearing? But, you know. They're wearing Caribbean summer <laughs> on oh a boat stuff. Gosh. Sure, you know. 
daughter, stepdaughter, and stepmother wearing scandalous things. Okay, that's fine. We'll we'll go. Okay, so here I we mean, go. It's not that scandalous. Dinah's <laughs> is uh, like a sports bra type bikini. It's got, yeah, but it dinner? seems more actiony. But I mean, it's dinner? hot. I mean, oh I, I sympathize. It's quite hot down Okay, here. that's fine. That's fine. Okay, so this is what I was talking about. Talia calls Dinah a witch. So I thought this was such a change, and I, I wondered, you know, what did she think her father wanted? She was shocked that he wants marriage. I mean, did, did she just think he wanted, uh, as I call it, pelvic affiliation? I mean, what's going on here? What well, Thoughts on Dinah's turn, as I'll say. You mean Talia's? What did I say? Dinah? Dinah. See, that's why it's good to have a co-host. Yes. Thoughts on Talia's change in perspective regarding Dinah? Well, I mean, this one actually makes some sense. Whereas before I was, I was still sort of on the outside. This one I really understood because, as I said, Talia's whole character is subsumed in serving her father. Mm-hmm. And she is rewarded by him trusting her absolutely she is the number two the darth vader to his emperor palpatine and um there's a line in the recent but what was it talia showed up in something recently and she said that oh that's right okay so in deceased the digital first uh zombie thing um talia was talking to damien and she said that the only way she knew her father loved her was when he killed the people who threatened her. Mm. And I would say that she doesn't have a good sense of her father's love because her father's a terrible person and Mm. doesn't express love in a healthy and appropriate way. So she also doesn't know how to express love in an appropriate and healthy way. And so when she's threatened with the potential of a new heir, uh, a stepbrother, she reacts with great fear. And that felt really realistic to me, not sympathetically because I've always loved all my siblings, but it made sense on a, on a very human level to me. Okay. That perhaps, you know, daddy, all all of daddy's love will go towards this woman and not me. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that was actually very reasonable because Raish is not a very, um, I I stand by what I said. He's not good at expressing love in an appropriate and healthy way. Yeah. Yeah. I get that for sure. But do you think that she thought that he, I don't know, what what did she think this relationship with Dinah was between her father and Dinah? Because that she seems so, I thought she was a plaything of moments distraction. Yeah, I don't know. I yeah, I think that's that, it. I mean, I don't know how old Talia is supposed to be, but I think she thinks in the long term. And so she sees most people as disposable. And mm-hmm. if Dinah became a wife, she st- stops being disposable and starts having to be something that changes Talia's life. Such a scene, such a scene. Now, there are some other details in that particular scene that I do want to talk about. I did find the aviator glasses. There they are. There they are. Okay, I just wanted to say that. So we're told via Babs that Dinah's coming off of a strange relationship. And even Dinah, I think, is a little bit off kilter because of Hunky McCunkerson. But is, is she so off? that her danger radar would be off. So this is what I was talking about in the previous issue. I mean, she's watching Raymond and, you know, ordering Ubu to basically incapacitate Jason. He, Jason wasn't doing much. I mean, it was a bit suspicious, but does she not see anything that's potentially dangerous about Raymond? Is she just off? And, and we can say like, yeah, you know, she's nursing a broken heart. She's not 
working on all four cylinders, I guess, as they say, or is this a bit out of character for Dino? I would say there's two things that make this work for me. The first is that Dino is clearly rebounding. When you're rebounding, you're very vulnerable. You tend to jump immediately into any sparks of feeling and you fan them into flames. And so there's all that really kind of unhealthy infatuation that she's got with uh, Raish, who she thinks is, is mm-hmm. Raymond. And also she's on vacation. Like I know <laughs> uh, I'm obviously not in school anymore, but when I was in school, I would not be terribly interested in doing school type things mm-hmm. when I was on vacation in the summer. So I, I think she's got the double whammy of rebounding and being on vacation. So why does she have to evaluate everyone as a potential supervillain? Yeah, that's true. That's true. She is timed out. And she does even threaten, I don't know if it's in this one, that she's never coming back. I can't remember if it's this issue or not. So it seems like she really wants to be out of the game, the superhero game. So I guess that Viking issue, which is so interesting, that that really deeply affected her. Whereas Carolyn and I, I think we're just like, this is an interesting mission, you know, get back to Babs and Dinah. But it it actually was more than that for Dinah actually living it. So that that is interesting. Well, this is a, probably an easy question, but what does it say about Raymond that his vision of a perfect woman is one who is able to bear children? What do you think about that? Does it say anything new about Raymond? that we haven't already known. And by Raymond, I mean Raish or Roz. Don't feel pressured to call him Raish. You can call him Roz, sir. Well, I just did a, a marathon of the, the Christopher Nolan movies, so that's kind of okay. why Roz is in my head right gotcha. now. I don't know my Roz history enough. I don't know when the idea that his, his, his very evil scheme, I would like to point out, this is super, super evil. Yeah. His scheme is to basically reincarnate himself in his own child. Like that is actually, I think, in some versions, what Damien is. Damien mm. is supposed to be the the body into which Roz will implant his soul or his memories or something. Um, because, you know, his own body is, is dying and it would be easier for some time for him to have a young body to grow strong again. So I don't know when that happened. Uh, I know that in Batman Beyond, he actually transferred his consciousness to Talia. Yo. He sure did. That was such a weird episode. Oh, it was creepy. (laughs) So I don't, and I think that was actually around the same time as this issue. So I would say that the idea of him impregnating uh, someone who he thinks will make his child slash receptacles body stronger definitely is in character for his evil, eugenics loving, immortal, craving, (laughs) supervillain self. I, I like. It is gross, but I mean, he is a supervillain, so it's not, like, unusual. Yeah. And, I mean, he did try to... I guess he... I'd have to think about what his views on on women are in general, because, I mean, he tried to... He's always wanted to have Talia be married to someone or have some equal partner or, or partner that at least he can stand. But I feel like that's still part of his eugenics plan to create a worthy receptacle. Yeah. Because, again, that was what Damien was for with Batman. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, but if he loves Talia, it's interesting then what part, I mean, she's just, I don't know, a part of the plan almost. So I don't, but is Dinah, does he have any true 
feelings towards her. I mean, we've already established that he loves in a strange way and doesn't show it healthily or properly. But do you think he has any affection towards her or just sees her as a means to his ultimate goal? I think that he admires her spirit and her, of of course, her physicality. She's one of the the greatest martial artists in the DC universe. So he admires both her physical strength and her mental discipline that you need to get to that level of skill. And I think against his his will, he kind of does end up giving her a part of his emotional heart. Mm. Um, Because, you know, at the end, he's like, oh, my, I've lost Dinah. And I think it was a little more than just his plan being ruined. But, I mean just the fact that he does have a, a small part of him genuinely in love with her doesn't mean that he's not you know, completely inappropriate and unhealthy. And his whole plan is just really gross. <laughs> it, it, it is pretty bizarre for sure. I wonder also about the scene where she, we find out that she can't bear children and we, we or I guess potentially we revisit the, wounds that she suffered during longbow hunters and for any sort of trauma that we're revisiting i think it's it it should carry a lot of weight with it do you think enough weight was written and shown in those particular pages did it come up too soon was enough time spent what do you think about that scene in particular i thought that dinah's reaction was very nicely done i think it might have been nice to have maybe a couple of captions of her thoughts uh it wasn't a very internal scene we just saw her from the outside Mm -hmm. but i thought she her reaction felt very real and i like the fact that that is the turn after that just blatant display of really strange pressure from who she still thinks is raymond that's when she starts investigating so i thought that it was deliberately constructed as an emotional turning point for dinah and i think it worked well that way yeah The only bummers, I guess I'll say, is that, number one, she didn't have this sort of conversation with Babs. I think that that could have been really deep and meaningful. And she doesn't have a good receiver to talk to in Rage because he's, like, listening, going, "Uh uh uh-huh, uh-huh, I can cure that. So it's like (laughs) there's not very much empathy there. It's just like, okay, he's hearing her but he's not really listening or he's listening but not hearing which whichever way you want to go so that's the only disappointment i think and and it comes it comes quickly for me like i wish maybe well i guess we don't need her to to focus on that trauma we we do want you know these characters to who have suffered trauma to to not let that define them but it's just interesting that it comes it comes all out in this in this particular arc and so i think that's the only thing that i miss really is that she wasn't able to talk about this with barbara but like you said before really they're just starting off in this intimate part of their relationship so they it's not like they've had time to really hash out hey what was it like to be in longbow hunters oh hey was it what was it like to be in the killing joke so i guess we we can only do so much Anything else from 33 in particular? No, I think this was a really fun issue of Dinah taking control. It's it's really the turn, as I said, yeah. when we were talking about the cover, when we start to really see where the arc is going. Because mm-hmm. obviously, Dinah and Roz are not going to really get together long term. So it's not going to be a true romance. Yeah. Uh, so I liked starting to see where it was going in the long run. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of, and I don't know which issue number it is, but she was on vacation and 
the way that Dixon plotted it is that he made suspenseful moments. Like she walks into the room and she goes, <gasps> and you look and it's like, oh, it's just a dirty room or all sorts of things. But now, hey, she's on vacation. Bad stuff's actually happening. So I don't know if she's lulled herself into a false sense of security or not. Okay, so moving on to 34, we're seeing something suspicious where he's holding her. She looks comatose and who knows, he could drop her in the pit. And then kind of a dead-eyed stare. <laughs> we have of, a floating dinahead. A thousand-mile stare or whatever that is, which makes sense, right? Because we know it happens when you get dropped in the Lazarus pit. Thoughts on this particular? Oh, and we have different symbols. we got the demon. The demon. Yeah. And then I'm not sure about those. I wonder if they mean anything. But probably going back to his um, his historical story that he was telling, that he actually lived through. Well, it looks like we've got a like a curved sword on the right with a shield maybe. Oh yeah. And then I don't know, maybe that's a pit on the oh, left hand side. Could be. Could be a representation of the Lazarus pit. Mhm. But uh I I think this is really fantastic. The red stripe down the middle gives it an ominous feeling, sort of like mm-hmm. blood. And yeah. I mean this is a very ominous cover. The other covers had more personality or action. This has a real sense of dread to it, which I think yep. is appropriate because this is a very dark issue. Yeah. Now, if Carolyn Coco were here, she probably would comment on the tatas right there. I don't know. They do seem a little artificially designed there. I don't know. I'll leave it up to Carolyn to to say. Well, uh, I do think that it's important that in none of these covers is um, the famous broken backed pose where that is, the yes. front and the back are both like. So this is the person, and they're like this. Yeah. So like, we don't see any of that very strange pose that yeah. is very common in later. Well, in art. Yeah, in general. I think it's yeah. thankfully gone away, but it was really common even up to the 2010s. Yeah, in in 33, the very first page is her diving, and I was looking, I was like, no, that's a pretty good dive pose. Yeah, so yeah, did a good job there. Okay. Who do do do? Yeah, it's the tension between Power Girl and Oracle. I, I mentioned that, and and then the outfit. Do you have anything to say about that without spoiling, of course, what we know about? It? Is it is it does it feel too? I mean, she seems like a really terrible. Well, she seems like a mean person, frankly. Like, but that's because I'm biased. I'm like, give Babs a break. But when I think about how Power Girl is here and then I think about how Batgirl is in 50, I'm like, hmm, they're both kind of jerks, aren't they? (laughs) But yeah, do you have any thoughts? Do you feel like knowing what you know, that this is warranted? This is warranted behavior and anger? So I would not say it's warranted, but I would say it's very understandable. When you finally get a chance to read the, the backstory, It's a rich story, and it explains both sides fairly. And I'm still on Babs' side, but it it was hard choices that had to be made, and I understand why Karen is so hostile. And she is really hostile. Yeah. But she also, I mean, she so shows some honor in the next issue in respecting Babs's secret identity. So I yeah. think she's still a heroic character, even with the bitterness. Yeah. Were you at least surprised about that? That's in 35, of course. But that was one of my points, that she didn't let on to Babs's true identity to militia. I was a bit surprised because she was so hostile. So I think that was supposed to be, you know, a pet the cat moment where she's like, I will do the right thing, even though I really don't like you. Yeah. So I thought that was a good moment. 
Yeah. So all we know really is that there is a high death toll, a catastrophic death toll in some mission. That's all we have so far. And Power Girl blames Baz, but she also blames herself. I think she owns up in 35 potentially. What do you think about her outfit? Well, this is a very strange period of Power Girl's life when she's Atlantean. And I, I was just actually exploring some of Aquaman's mythology on the various wikis today. And I was just really confused at how many people have been Aquaman and all their complicated family trees and their magic systems. So I just sort of know in the back of my head that this is Atlantean power girl who's magic based. And I kind of just accept that. I don't delve too deeply. I mean, it's a nice one. I still don't understand her most famous one with the, the window or her, her boobs. Yeah. That's such a strange outfit to me. Uh, for many people, I suppose, except for teenage boys. But I, even I as like a teenage this. boy, I did not get it. <laughs> I like this particular one. I think it has a certain style and flair to it. I think it complements her well. The headband kind of reminds me of something out of maybe the eighties. You know, like you would see what's her name, Suzanne Summers, maybe doing with with like a a or or what what's her name who uh, does Let's Get Physical, Physical, and Sandy. From some, this is from Greece. Do you remember? No, oh, no. I, I have it's not unfortunately not seen um, Greece. Okay, that's okay. We'll go with Suzanne Summers. So that's that's the only thing that is interesting. But it does match her sash. So I do I do like the style of that particular. Yeah, it's outfit. got a. I would say maybe almost a nautical or piratical flair to it, which fits with Atlantis. I'd say. Mm, yeah. Okay, so Barbara goes on a mission in the field. Okay, she's dropped down by wires. Her chair is dropped down by wires. I chuckle a bit at this, and I don't know if it's offensive or not, but I only chuckle because that temple cannot be wheelchair (laughs) accessible. (laughs) Oh, yeah. So I don't know what's going on, but we'll give it the benefit of the doubt. But what's the significance of Barbara physically being in the field on this mission? Well, this arc to me, is the true sequel to Hunt for Oracle. Mm. Because it's the second major rapprochement of (laughs) Babs and Dinah. It's the second major time where they have a chance to have a face-to-face. And I think Dixon really wanted to construct it. So whereas Dinah was the one to come to Babs' rescue in Hunt for Oracle, Babs could have that moment where she could come to Dinah's rescue here in the big romance. And I also think she needed to be there for the choice she makes to have any meaning. Mm -hmm. Because she makes a really hard choice. Yeah. But I think that also for Barbara, it wasn't a hard choice at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I think there's good symmetry here with this story and the hunt for Oracle. I also think that Oracle is really putting her heart on the line now. And I think she's really investing in the relationship because she was sending an agent. She was behind the lines, sending Jason to check in on her, but now she's in the field going to go and help her friend. And I think that that action is, is really powerful and will push forward that, that relationship. So yeah, I totally. And I'd say that that the fact that she made a mistake by sending Jason instead of talking to Dinah Mm. is part of what propels her into coming herself because she really wants to show Dinah how much Dinah means to her. Yeah, absolutely. Do you like that Boo Beetle is with her? Do you think 
Barbara could be on her own, but maybe it doesn't make as much sense given the circumstances and her, her physical limitations in this old temple. I mean, what do you think about his, his presence there? I would say she needs someone just because those stairs are ridiculous. <laughs> and if you want any kind of speed, you're going to need a two person team on there. Mm. I also think that blue people makes a lot of sense because of their previous history. And they really do have a sympathy. I mean, I don't really ship them, but I did think it was kind of cute when they were e-dating. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that he's another character like Jason who has that tie to her and he can really be a male ally to the, um, to the birds and specifically to Barbara because of their history. Yeah, absolutely. And then with Dinah, so she is really beaten up badly by Ubu. And I felt like this was inconsistent with her particular character. I understand story-wise it was certainly necessitated to make that huge choice. But she was able to, to a certain extent, beat up Bane in a previous story. And so I just wondered what happened. What happened to the shot to the cojones that we saw before? Do you take any issue with with how much she is beaten up by Ubu and she really has no, I don't know, it's not a fair fight it seems like at all. She's She's got no chance with him it seems. Well, I do think that this fight is a little bit weak in a couple ways. One is that we don't quite see Dinah taking the blows that cause this catastrophic damage. Like, she is mortally injured in this fight, and we don't really see Ubu just landing that spine-breaking blow or the the rib-crushing. So I think it could have been a little clearer in in the way it was drawn. I also think that given Black Canary's skill, I mean, Ubu, of course, is a really terrifying threat. I mean, Mm. Ubu is Raz's number one assassin. He's Raz's personal bodyguard. So that is a very formidable post. And so I don't mind that Ubu can take Canary. I do kind of wish it had been multiple guys. So it felt more like yeah. Canary was holding her own, but losing because there were just more than one really top level assassin shooter. But I also would go back to the fact that Canary is off. She just came back from the past with a very disordered heart, just because of Hunky McHunkerson. <gasps> and she also... She's on vacation, so she hasn't been yeah. doing her katas and stuff. We never see her training. So I think that she wasn't ready. Yeah. I will say for the viewers, there is this really interesting tear in her shorts that she gets. <laughs> oh, goodness. I did not I notice that. <laughs> I was like, what on earth? I will say that that whole scene, I mean, that we're looking at where she's being just pommeled on and pushed on the stairs and everything, it almost is like – Bad optics, in my in my opinion, from Dixon. Just it's like, oh man, are we revisiting almost what she that trauma that she went through with longbow hunters? And I can understand. I understand the point of, of all this, and 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 of course we're pushing towards that choice, which is really the climax. I I think of this whole arc potentially her in the Lazarus Pit and Barbara forcing her in there but it's just hard to watch that knowing that she went through something similar and like you said i I think it would have been better had it not been one man had it been the league of assassins because then you could see her have her agency like actually show this is how capable she is and i totally agree with you that she is off her game with the heart and then not training everything i feel like maybe you know just with dinah i almost wish that she 
had had been given a, a better <laughs> a better fight for her. It's just hard. It's hard to to watch and just be like, wow, she's being traumatized again. And then you know, a man saves her, Blue Beetle. I don't know, one punches. We don't really even see, but well, it was it was clearly Blue Beetle. Well, I I would disagree. I think it's actually <gasps> the way I wrote the summary and the way I read the thing is that the temple is collapsing around them because okay. of the the devastation that militia is pounding on the temple, and I think that part of the the ceiling collapsed on Uber because okay. you see all those rocks yeah, around Yeah, that him. is true, yeah. So, I mean, you could argue it's still militia, he's still a man, but it's not him saving her directly. It's just sort of the circumstances of the location and she was saved by the the rock, really. Yeah, she lucked out. She did, and that happens. <laughs> it sure does, yeah. Do you want to talk about this this huge choice? That Dinah um, well, says no, Babs, you go into the pit, and Babs says no. Well, as I said, this is a really meaningful choice because Lazarus pits are, are devastatingly guarded. I mean, as Roz says in this, he's made them all into fortresses. So it's not like you can just go there for fun and get a cure. And I think Babs wouldn't do that herself anyway because she's found a place to be a hero where she's more powerful than she was before. But the temptation to walk is is so intense. And obviously um, when DC decided to, to give her the chip in the new 52, that was a, a great joy to her. But I think that, as I said before, it's not a choice at all. Dinah's dying. She has to save her. So I think maybe later on, she might have some regrets, but really Dinah means so much to her that she would never regret a second of making Dinah the one who goes in the pit. I also... Yeah, and and wholeheartedly agree with that. And I I will say that it's it's great that even though it's an emotional moment, that she still is cheeky and says, "And let you be the hero again," <laughs> which which I absolutely love. But I will say that I, I wonder if circumstances would be different. I don't even know if if Dixon was thinking about this. I'm sure he knew. He's an intelligent man. This is not the first time she's been offered a cure. So at, at least two times, in my memory anyways, you've got Underworld Unleashed, I believe it was called, where I think his name was Neuron, <laughs> offered her to be able to walk again, and she said no. And then there was an, I can't remember who did this, but in Justice League, when there was a, a huge threat and it was a, a longer story, someone else offered something to her. So this is potentially the third time that she's been offered. So I don't know if it becomes easier for her to say no, but I wonder how the temptation would be if it were the first time. But at the same, this is Barbara Gordon we're talking about. And to have her, you know, we're getting close to best friends, you know, her best friend practically in her arms, bleeding out, about to die. There's no way that she would make that selfish choice and say, oh yeah, I'm diving into the the pit. So that wouldn't be Barbara Gordon. She it just would, would not, not be. It would not be. So yeah, sister, I'm jumping and she rolls in. That'd be terrible. Though I would like to see what a an insane Barbara Gordon would be. Maybe we've well, seen you, you should we were talking about this on Twitter, but you should check out that um Elseworld's finest uh Batgirl oh, and yeah. Supergirl. Yeah. Because that's a very interesting depiction <laughs> by Barbara Kiesel of yeah. uh of a Batgirl who's gone slightly off interesting yeah i'll certainly have to i've got to get past the art the art is kind of what what yeah that art is definitely the kind that we were talking about with the weird poses and stuff yeah the cheesecake art Mm -hmm. okay do you have anything else to say on 34 because we're going to talk about the the big curing in the well i just 
when I saw the pit in this issue, I realized what was happening. Because I read this after I read Simone's uh, run. So I knew, of course, that Dinah had her cry again. Mm. But I didn't know how she got it back. So I just sort of gotten used to it. And then I realized this is how she gets it back. And I'd, I'd read, you know, the 33 issues before. And I was just that revelation just kind of blew my mind. This is how it happened. It was such a cool thought. And I thought it was a fittingly epic Caribbean adventure in a mysterious <laughs> island and a, a genuine supervillain. Ra's al Ghul is involved. Yeah. This isn't a thug. This is yeah. a, a major threat. And so this story felt big to me. And then her going in and coming out with the cry was a fantastic reveal. Yeah. And but it's funny because of how big Raish actually is, especially in Batman's rogues, you know, that we don't see mm-hmm. Batman, which I'm I'm happy about. That's fine. Oh yeah. But I feel like Batchirk would definitely have appeared and he would have been like, ladies, leave him to me. This is uh you know, just stay away from him, he's dangerous. So Okay, so then we get to 35, our final issue in this particular arc. So here we have, could be an evil Dinah. She's breaking out of the, has the, I was going to ask if the circle was breaking every cover, but no, not. But this one definitely is breaking. There's some fire and there's some light coming from her eyes. And there's a hint of the future on the bottom. Bum, bum, bum. Rebirth. There it is. (laughs) That's a little joke about 2016. But yeah, I mean, this this is a mirror of the earlier light breaking out, but this time it's breaking out of Dinah's eyes and mouth with mm-hmm. the cry and the resurrection. This is it's just a powerful image of Dinah caught in madness, but you can see by her arms, she's still just so powerful. And then yeah. it, it's it's really so dramatic the way this cover works. Absolutely. And the... Correct me if I'm wrong, but you can only use the pit once, correct? Each pit? That's my understanding. I think, yeah. I mean, pits are completely made up, so I'm sure there's like <laughs> special pits where you can uh, do different things. There's the name pit in Tom King's Batman run where it's actually a pit of exchange. You have to give a life to get a life. And, and so there are pits that have different rules. Okay. But the standard Lazarus pit, it's a one-time use only, which yeah. is why it's so important that Bane is destroying them. Yeah, and, and I like the fact that this pit seems to be breaking down, so it's almost like the after effect of it being used for sure. Yeah. So this is a pretty big deal that we are curing Dinah since she's had those injuries since Longbow Hunters, as I said. And this was the status quo since 1987. I did ask Ryan Daly, who's a huge Black Canary fan, and I just wondered if, you know, editor- did anyone have a say in this? Is it just Dixon could pull this off and convince the powers that be? And he said that it was mostly Mike Grell and the editor Mike Gold, who also edited Black Canary's mini and 12 issue series in the 90s, who uh, were into that. Uh, those were the two who wanted her depowered. By the time Dixon started Birds of Prey, he had already taken over Green Arrow years earlier and then all the Batman books. I'm sure by then there wasn't much strong opposition to giving her the screen back. So, so but still, 87? Whoo! To 2001 we are? Man, that's pretty, that's pretty big. That's a long, a long haul there. Do you think anyone else could have pulled this off besides Dixon? Oh, I mean, I'm sure lots of writers could have pulled it off. I think Simone <laughs> definitely could have pulled it off. I've only read a couple of her solo issues. I don't I don't really think that the writer of that one, at least not in that series, could have pulled it off. And apparently she really didn't want to. Mm. I'm trying to think who else has used Canary Ranch. 
I think maybe the Bensons might have been able to pull it off, but mm-hmm. I think that they might have needed... I don't know. I really like that arc with the, what was it, Blackbird, where Dinah uh-huh. sort of expands her power set. I thought that was kind of cool. So I think maybe a couple other writers could have done it. Definitely not only Dixon, but I think Dixon yeah. pulled it off in a really powerful way. Yeah, the clout. Yeah, and I think it was long enough that it made it significant. You know, if it was just a couple of years down the road and they threw her in. Uh, yeah, I think everything just went together as the perfect storm with this particular arc and, and building up to it, which was great. So, okay. Does, oh, here we go. Does erasing the injuries erase the trauma in readers' minds? Is this action at all similar to what we have seen happen with Barbara in recent years with the chip? Well, (laughs) the chip is a, is part of a relaunch and the relaunch also de-aged Barbara by about a decade. And so it's not quite the same because this is the same Dinah who was traumatized in the long run. There is no break. Um, Of course, there were a couple of resets, but this is still Dinah. And this is done as part of a storyline. And one of my biggest complaints about the New 52 and the way it's retconned Barbara is that we never had this story. We never had the Barbara struggling with her rehabilitation, struggling with her physical therapy, and then finding out about the experimental treatment. Like, we never had that story. So it felt unearned that she could walk again. Now, if they'd retconned it so that the killing joke never happened, that would have been a completely different situation. Because it wouldn't need to be earned because it wasn't a a trauma that she had to overcome anymore, but they kept the trauma, but they never gave us the story of her growing in it. And that that's really my biggest beef about the treatment of Barbara specifically in the new 52. I wonder about people who might not be like, what if they're just tuning into this now and they're like, Oh, Canary gets her, but they don't, recognize you know the significance of that or even people who haven't read this story haven't read longbow hunters and they just assume black canary has always had their cry those are the people that i sort of wonder about and i just yeah i i feel like no i agree with you that just because she's cured now she's healed that the trauma is still there We, we can't forget about that but i just wonder if it if we do if we do forget about like oh yeah she has a canary cry now but we don't reflect back that oh there was a time when actually she didn't and she couldn't bear children and she endured this thing i wonder if even though we don't want to we do actually i don't know well dinah also has lost so much in the new 52 with the horrible team seven backstory and the loss of her mother as a role model right Mm -mm. like the New 52 and I have many beefs, and <laughs> most of them are centered around the Batgirls and the Birds of Prey. Oh, so, Yeah, I'm sure. Okay. We get a look at evil Dinah uh, and how she reacts towards Barbara. That was certainly hard to read. I don't know if I have a question about that. You can certainly comment. on. I mean, that was rough. That was rough to read. I think you need to be rough, otherwise it feels too easy. I mean, that's one of the yeah. things is something like this has to be earned. There have to be consequences and you have to make it. Obviously it's not real. You don't have Mm. Lazarus fist. You don't have Canary cries, but you have to make the characters feel real. And I think this kind of emotional just trauma that Diana inflicts on, on Babs, Mm -hmm. it has to feel so different from her. Otherwise we're just like, Oh, she's just kind of (laughs) loopy. Do do you feel like, Barbara, well, number one, I do have to say that with the canary cry happening at the very beginning, if Militia and Power Girl are having some issues and they're far away, then I feel like Blue Beetle and Babs should be dead. But that's just me. I think that you, there's... You are not wrong. <laughs> their you are skulls not wrong. should have been cracked. 
But, you know, I is Barbara just of the mind that she knows she's that Dinah's insane? She's not going to let these words affect her. But some of these words, I mean, cry, you little cripple. I can't remember. Crippled little fool. That's what it is. All of these, uh, all of these things. I, should we have seen at least maybe a, a crack in Barbara's composure? Are we okay? Just like, we'll just go on with the story and, and not focus on, on any impact that her Dinah's words may have had on Barbara. Well, I think Babs, this Babs at least, is a very mature and very intellectually capable person who really turns her emotions off in the field or in circumstances like this. Um, She'll have reactions later, but she's also very private, so she's not going to inflict that on a lot of people, especially since she really doesn't hold it against Dinah. I mean, that wasn't Dinah speaking, Mm -hmm. unlike um, Babs in a different version that we're going to talk about. But this Barbara is a mature and, and powerful uh, mind. And so I think she separated that in the urgency of the moment when yeah. it needed to be done. Yeah. And I mean, things were collapsing around them, so she can't <laughs> really cry at that point in time. Though the Silver Age, she probably would have been like, ah! And then someone was, you know, Blue Beetle would have been like, snap out of it. We got to get out of here. So that- I actually read some Hawkman and Hawk Girl from the Silver Age. Uh-oh. And it was interesting because... I think it was Gardner Fox did have hot girl crying, but she doesn't cry till after the fight. She's like really capable until they win. And then she cries. So I thought that was an interesting choice on his part. Tears, tears and women. It reminds me of those romance comics where there's always like someone crying. (laughs) Someone's weeping copiously in the corner. Oh yeah. So then we get to the scene where Barbara and Dinah are at Barbara's, house which i guess is the clock tower really and she wants dinah to stay with her and she she's concerned about her dinah jokingly says like maybe i've gone over to the dark side or something and but but barbara is like yeah actually you fell in love with an evil immortal you're dumped in god knows what kind of chemicals you step out totally insane and nearly kill ted and me is her concern warranted i mean especially the chemicals yeah absolutely but you know about falling in love with an evil immortal and things like that that there's i don't know is there a lack of trust there what do you think about this concern is it reasonable are dinah's actions reasonable and how she reacts to this being surveyed and monitored i think dinah understands dinah's just much a much more intuitively emotional person. She understands Mm. how feelings work better than Babs. Babs processes, I think, primarily through her mind. And so it's all, you know, rationalizations. Now the emotions are still there. Babs is a a person with feelings, but she, she thinks it through sometimes. So she sometimes loses sight of that. And Dinah can see through to the truth of her emotions. And she gets at the real thing, which is thanking Babs for saving her life. And I think that moment really shows Dinah's grasp of the emotions of the situation and is the truth of what this whole arc was building towards is getting these two closer to each other. Absolutely. Yep. But of course, what interrupts the closeness is this shipper moment right there. I just have to show that. And then the ending. So my question, of course, if you were Nightwing, would you be concerned about Barbara's state of mind? 
I would be extremely concerned, but that's partly because I've read Joker's Last Laugh and I know how it goes. Um, dum dum. Yeah, that's that's going to be something that I'm going to cover in December. So look forward to that, folks. Okay. It yeah. It's uh. Whoo. It's just, I mean, I get it. I get it that she would absolutely monitor him. I mean, someone already. Saw, I can't remember when that was. Was it Tim that came? Maybe it was Dinah when she first visited. It's like, oh, what's this? And because she always monitors the Joker. I mean, of all the people, of course, that would be the one person I think that she would monitor. So, and I'd like to go on record by saying that this this specific part where Barbara's monitoring the Joker, and we see how much of her mind she's dedicated to trying to protect people from him, Mm. is what makes me so angry about (gasps) issue number forty-seven because Barbara had no clue where Joker was. She had no idea. And she hadn't proofed, she hadn't made her apartment a fortress. She didn't have any weapons or traps or anything. Yeah. Barbara's apartment should be her bat cave. It should have her defenses. She should have weapons at reach in all times. And instead, she's completely helpless uh, and reactive. And that issue makes me so angry because of how proactive and how intentional she was with regards to the Joker in this part of the Birds of Prey. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've that I've never been so angry. I mean, maybe I'll get angry tonight, but I was laughing actually a lot at fifty because of how incredulous it is. Incredulous it is. But well, that's all I have for thirty-five. Do you have anything else on this particular issue? Um, I mean, for me, the issue. If I were continue continue to read, obviously, I, I talk about you know Blue Beetle and Joker's Last Laugh and all that stuff. But for me, the issue really ends with that moment of Babs and Dinah hugging because mm-hmm. that's where we're going. Yeah. Uh, there, there's two things in this, this arc. Of course, it starts out with this big romance and all that stuff, but that's just a misdirect. The point of this arc is to give Dinah her cry and to get these two characters closer together. Yeah. They're the heart of the series. They're the heart of this arc. And I love it. It is so... A lot of these arcs are a little forgettable in the first part of Birds of Prey. Um, I'm not a huge fan of the time travel stuff. I'm not a big fan of the fourth world stuff where they're mm-hmm. fighting like the, the new gods and stuff. That's a little weird to me. But Hunt for Oracle, the issue where Babs confronts the Joker with the nuclear plot, and the issue where, where Dinah has to witness the effects of a civil war in the station. And, you know, there's all those people who kill that, that man who's from the other side. And this, this arc, those four stories stand out to me from this run of Birds of Prey as really worthwhile stories that I would give to anyone. They're just really well-crafted. And this one, because it's this payoff of Dinah getting her cry and Babs and Dinah coming together closer on panel, not off panel. Land. They come together as friends on panel. I, I would give this to someone. I really wish they would make a trade of this, this five-issue arc and I could give it to people because this is classic Birds of Prey that shows why the brand mattered before Harley Quinn. Before Harley Quinn. I might also be a little bitter about that. Oh, boy. (laughs) Well, I will say that apparently they become so close that Dinah walks in on Barbara, you know, showering. Like, she's fine with just chatting with her in the bathroom. So that's how close they get. Out of 10 bad dates, what would you give this whole arc? I give it a and eight and a half bad Ooh, dates out of ten. Eight and so that's half um bad dates. Yeah, that's about four point two five <laughs> out of five. I'm used to Dustin th- doesn't like those. 
I, I'm used to out of fives, so I have to make sure that I'm not giving it too low on the five scale. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think I think I would. <sighs> Let me think about this. I think I'll. I give a. Mm, 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 mm. I feel like I want to give it like an eight point seven five because it's like close to a nine for me. So I'm going to give it an eight point. <laughs> I don't know if I've ever done this. Eight point seven five out of ten bad dates. But I I agree with you. I think that this is. Uh, there are probably other arcs I think that I might mention as well as being classic, but that it, this one certainly is. And I mean, that's what I'm going for is, you know, having this female friendship and, and developing it. And so now we're finally seeing it. I was waiting for so long. So it's such a tease. You read Hunt for Oracle and then you're waiting. Like, 35 oh issues. I know. It's so long. It's so long. Okay. Well, I just have one listener email, and it's from Professor Allen himself. Mail time. Here's the mail. It never fails. It makes me want to wag my tail. When it comes, I want to wail. He says, Stella, a few episodes back, you were talking with some other miscellaneous professor guest, and the concept of <laughs> death of the author came up. There are a few different angles here that often become conflated, and I wanted to comment on that. I am a supporter of the myth of authorial intent idea, which says that the creator of a work is the last person to be consulted in terms of what a work means. Once a work is released into the world, it is up to readers, viewers, etc. to interpret the work and determine what it means to them. What the creator wanted to communicate, how they intended the work to be interpreted, what they intended the work to mean, just doesn't matter. It's not up to them to decide how we should read their work. I fight to keep that notion separate from death of the author in terms of the creator's biography and prior work, which can certainly be valuable information in understanding a creative effort. To me, those are two completely different things, despite the tendency for them to be conflated. And both of those are different from separating art from artist, how a creator's character impacts our opinion of a work or our choice to consume a particular creator's work. But that's an email for a different day. Keep up the good work, and God bless. Professor Allen, Relatively Geeky Podcast, Dorcas, Dorkness to Light, <laughs> hair, <laughs> hair Care Correspondent, and Religion Expert. Man, he's given himself so many titles. Any thoughts on that? Any thoughts on that particular discussion I had ba- way back when? Do you personally have any struggles with consuming items from people that may not be upstanding human beings. Well, my favorite quote from Hamlet is probably if all got what they deserved, who should escape whipping? I think we all have done things that we knew weren't what we expected of ourselves, weren't Mm -hmm. what we knew was right. Some people more than others, some people have obviously hurt more people because they've had more opportunities to hurt people. Um, And I think that's definitely bad. And I do sometimes struggle um, when someone, now, now perhaps the less morally admirable thing is I tend to struggle more with buying books from people who annoy me more than people who I think have done wrong things. There, I mean, we could go case by case, but I don't really want to get into that because that can get really naughty, uh, and distract people from the, the principle, which I think is really, you have to make your own decisions on what you're comfortable with. And I am not a fan of trying to push my own willingness to to like or or consume something on someone else and i prefer other people not try to push their own 
things. I respect their willingness or unwillingness to, to read or consume something, but I want to make that decision myself because it's, it's my conscience that I have conscience that I have to consult. Mm-hmm. I did want to comment a little bit on the, the thing he talked about, the myth of the author, mm-hmm. because I, I slightly disagree. I went through a couple English programs and I think that you do have to strike a balance between the idea that the author said what they had to say in the text and that's where the text is where their influence should end and the idea of what used to be called biographical criticism that a text is only useful insofar as it sheds light on the person of the author. I think both of those are extremes that I don't think are helpful. To me, a text is communication and once I say something to you, you're interpreting it and you are interpreting the text, but you're also looking to me for more communication, just as I would look to you for more communication on what you say. And I think that what I like to do with communication from an author about a text that they've created is look to it for light. And insofar as it provides light to understanding the work, accept it. And insofar as it obscures the work, uh, disregard it. Mm. Yeah, it's a good word. Yeah, I'm I'm still working through it. Uh, <laughs> and I think I, I like knowing author biographies or, you know, did something happen that made this person either the way they were or the writing style that they are or why they crafted this particular book. Um, but, yeah, I'm, I'm still going to have to work through that, certainly. But, Alan, I appreciate that email a great deal. I don't think I'm going to say I disagree. I don't disagree or agree. I'm going to have to think on it. But uh, yeah, his other email. I look forward to your other email about the the consumption of bad products or consuming products from bad people. (laughs) I don't know. Okay, guess what, people? We're going to take a break and we're going to steal ourselves. We're going to gird our loins, as (laughs) they say. When we come back, we're going to review Batgirl 17 from 2001. And Batgirl 50, a.k.a. 102, a.k.a. 205, the finale from 2020. But first, it is Zias's Radio Hour featuring Silver Lining by First Aid Kit. So see you guys soon. There's music and there's laughter I don't know if I'm scared of dying But I'm scared of living too fast, too slow Regret, remorse, hold on No, no, I gotta go There's no starting over, no new beginnings Time raises on Just gotta keep on keeping on Gotta keep on going Looking straight out on the road Can't worry about what's behind you What's coming for you Further up the road what is gone? I try to do right what is wrong. I try to keep on keeping on. Yeah, I just keep on keeping on. I hear a voice call, calling out for me. These shackles I made in the town to be free. Be it for ease, be it for love. I won't take the
Oh my, you caught me. You caught me drinking the Covfefe, pumpkin spice latte, of course. Batgirl 50 has driven us to drinking. Welcome back. This is our part two, and we are covering two Batgirl stories, and one cleanses the palate of the other. (laughs) Ian, would you prefer to do 50 first or 17? In the interest of chronology and giving us time to really... Analyze 50. Uh-huh. Let's go with the uh, the 17 first. Okay, so let's do it. So now this was my job, of course, and I will do a screen share later after I do the recap. So this is Batgirl 17, no subtitle again. August 2001 is the cover date. Writer Kelly Puckett, penciler Damian Scott, inker Robert Campanella, and colors Digital Chameleon. Batgirl is in an alleyway helping a woman when the punk harassing her gets a hit on Batgirl before she knocks him out. Both Batgirl and a stalker Batman (laughs) who watches from above contemplate this. Back at her cave, both of them train and Batman wonders what is up since she got hit. Is she bored? Cass doesn't know. Their discussion is interrupted by Oracle who says she has found where the video of Cass without her mask is from when the government agents got in her way. So this is way back in 14 and 15. Cass wonders why it actually matters, and Oracle tells her if she steals it and Oracle wipes the files, Cass can go back to the way it was and not stay in the cave all day. Batjerk says this is not a high priority, but Oracle makes it a priority by saying they also have a blood sample, and he's like, "Mm, maybe we should go. Oracle leads Cass, again without a mask, on a mission impossible style mission and it is a success of course oracle starts to ask her something but Cass cuts her off and says she's needed in gotham oracle calls bat jerk who has some major mental issues of his own sticking his hands in hot coals and says that she's worried about batgirl 
Batchurk, like any ignorant father does, says she's fine. Oracle explains all the way she's not fine, and it clicks for Batman that it must be Master, the CIA agent. Masters, the CIA agent behind the death of the man Batgirl saved in issue 14, whose name was Johnson, I believe. Meanwhile, Cass, now a member of the Morlocks from Marvel, if you... I'll show you that image. Ventures to the outdoors via a sewer opening and buys a rose. Batman interrupts her short-lived joy by bringing up Masters and telling her to settle it. At his home, Cass whispers blowback in his ear, and a startled Masters turns around and shoots all six of his bullets from his revolver, but he misses. She knocks him out, drops his gun, and looks out over the city. Later, she contacts Oracle, and they meet up, and Oracle knows that just because she took him down, she doesn't feel better. But she approves of this because life is more important than justice. Cass shows her the rose, and Oracle tells her what both the rose and Cass need. Okay, and that was brought to you by Stella. I was actually the person who recapped that, which doesn't often happen because I'm lazy. Okay, you should post so, it on the wiki. <laughs> I could, but it, well, people would be like, what does BJ mean? It means bad jerk. So I don't know <laughs> if they would like it as much. Because it's, I mean, yours wasn't, yours was, um, what is it? Objective. Mine is rather biased. Okay, so screen sharing now. So we'll talk about the cover first. So, oh, and I, I should say that, yeah, it's 17, no... You haven't missed something. I did 14 and 15, and yes, I skipped 16. 16 I'm going to cover in episode 200, so that's what's happening here. But I just couldn't – I didn't want to ask my guest to cover this when he missed 14 and 15. But I am asking Ian to do the same thing, so thank you, Ian. But, uh, yeah, what do you think about this particular cover of Batgirl? It's a fine cover. It doesn't really stand out as one of the covers uh, on this run that really stands out. There are mm-hmm. some that really do. This one, I don't know, it just feels a little standard yeah. um, versus some of the more breathtaking ones that were used as the covers for the three trades that collect the first 36 issues of the, aura, mm-hmm. the run. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So nothing wrong with it. It just doesn't really stand out as a cover. Yeah, people who know my comics history, which probably is just a handful of people, know that when I was growing up, and of course I gravitated, Spider-Man was my guy, and I went to comic shops, I would pick out an issue without knowing anything about it, just from its cover. And I will say, like, looking at this, you know, if I were that Stella way back when, eh, I don't know that this would necessarily be what I would choose. And and not many people would understand the significance. Like, if you were to just look at 17 and you got this guy smoking a cigar and you have some people, there's a guy with a badge. So, oh, are they dirty cops? What's happening here? But until you read 14 and 15, the significance is is lost on you here and then she's just in kind of a standard pose so i I would agree with you there though i am very entranced by the smoke drawing actually i don't know why but it it intrigues me okay let's see here i do want to make a comment about barbara's hair of course because we have to it's i'm contractually obligated now so uh (laughs) she has bangs she's wearing a handkerchief in her hair this time and it is about shoulder length and not as red red as we saw in birds of prey so it's kind of more of an orangish tint here so there you go alan 
so one of my main questions from this is, do you feel like she actually takes down Masters? Does she complete that mission? This is a very ambiguous issue. It's, it's not wordless, but there are so many wordless sections. The storytelling is very emotional. So I don't know if I can say what I think happened literally to Masters. I yeah. think it's quite possible that they brought him down. They reported him to the CIA's internal affairs. You know, maybe he, he's out of a position of authority after this. Mm. But I don't know for sure. All we know is that she took her personal power back from him, basically. Yeah, I think literally and and metaphorically as well, because, of course, she was able, well, Oracle erases the drive. She has that video. She destroys the blood, all of that stuff. And then here, I think even if he is still in a position of power, just the fact that she was able to infiltrate where he lives, that she either it's because he's so freaked out that he misses or it's because she, we do know that she can dodge some bullets from time to time and knocks him out. I think that's just another thing, like, don't mess with me, that he's not untouchable either. Just like, you know, maybe Johnson felt that at one point or, or maybe she did initially that, yeah, this Masters isn't untouchable either. So so in that sense, I guess, yeah, she does take him down. But I think it's not like a, he's he's out of it for, for forever. Um, I kind of imagine him still being in a position of power. But it, it it's interesting. It's just a really interesting scene. I mean, I jumped right towards the end, but I, I felt like this was the most compelling part. And the fact that she whispers blowback, that's another question I have. What, what do you what do you feel like the significance of that is? Uh, should she have whispered payback? I don't know. What do you think about this word choice? For me, since this issue is very much focused on justice, mm-hmm. I think that the writer, uh, Dame Kelly Puckett, wanted to avoid confusing the issue with vengeance because mm. this is really about this man's actions, consequences coming back upon him. It's not really about Cass enacting a personal vendetta, I would argue. And so I think that's why the blowback was was chosen. Mm. I was trying to, I was looking up to see, Guggenating as my uh, friend, can't believe I'm calling him that, Sam Heath said, uh, the unintended adverse results of a political action or situation, or of course, a process in which gases expand or travel in a direction opposite to the usual one through escape of pressure or delayed combustion, which I certainly get that. Like, this is also what he has wrought almost. Like, you brought this on yourself because of what you did to Johnson. So I can also see that as well. But I totally get your, yeah, the vengeance versus justice situation. Do you feel like life is more important than justice as we see Barbara talk to her about at the end? I think that's a limited view of justice. I I think that justice is about restoring order and life is impossible without a certain measure of order. Mm. I do think that Babs is getting at a very true thing, which is that justice doesn't restore the past. That doesn't make justice irrelevant, but it does mean that we need to have an appropriate emotional response. Like so much of Batgirl, this this run of Batgirl is very carefully emotional. It's at a very carefully controlled emotional register. It's never, oh yeah. You don't have those moments where Cass does something and you're just like, oh, that was the most awesome thing ever. There's always a sense of cost and trauma and tragedy, even in the most amazing things that Cass does. And that's really why I think people are drawn to her. I 
struggle with it. I'm much more of a Stephanie fan in that I like being able to find the joy at the end of the day. I think cast fans tend to be more able and more willing to to struggle with the ambiguity at the end of the day. And I Mm. think that's a deliberate choice by the creators. And I think it works really well for those who respond to it. Yeah. And we, and we see her struggling to attempting to, and struggling to complete, find that joy at the end of the day too. I think that Rose is, is really symbolic of it. The fact that she goes shopping for like her first time out on her own, which is really interesting. And that's a really powerful scene where she's yeah, in the absolutely. crowd and you just see her. Yeah. And, you know, then it's interrupted right away. She's finding, and then, you know, she's got to toss it aside for the greater mission. So I think that that is that struggle. But then Barbara is there to sort of help tend what that, what that rose is and, and what Cass needs. So you do, you still have that dual nature. Well, you, you have the parents. So you have the parents and the, the dichotomy between the two of them. I'm trying not to because Donovan doesn't like it. Talk about Barbara and Bruce, you know, because this is Cassandra's book. So I'm going to try to come up with, you know, questions. But this whole scene is just really interesting of her being like, so what? You know, that I've got this. Batman even is like, so what? And then Oracle is the one like, yeah, it is important. She needs to do this. And, and she is able to snap them out of it. Is it? Just that Cass is now so used to her new situation and is really tending towards Batman's view of thinking that she feels like this is unimportant. Yeah, I'm not sure if I necessarily have a good question. I think that might be as I feel like she's almost on a scale. We have like two sides of the scale. We've got the Barbara Gordon scale and the Bruce Wayne side. And Sometimes, you know, like right here, I feel like it's leaning towards Bruce Wayne, that that Cass is leaning towards his perspective. And at the end, you've got her leaning towards Barbara. I don't know. What do you think about this this whole scene here and, and the convincing and the, the differing of opinions between the two and, and how Cassandra is, is navigating those two opinions? Sorry, it's a hard question. <laughs> I was this, trying to form it. This series really makes you ask the hard questions. It's one of the reasons why I admire it so much. Because I actually think that Batman understands Cass in a way that Babs cannot. Babs, of course, has dealt with tragedy, but she's dealt with it in, I would argue, a healthier way than Batman mm-hmm. has. And Cassandra and Bruce are just so defined by their tragedy in a way Babs doesn't let herself be. And that means that Bruce has an insight into why Cass doesn't care about her identity, why Cass has abandoned everything except the mission because he's abandoned everything except the mission. And I, I am deeply moved by that connection between Bruce and Cass, even though I also share Bams's desire for something more, for some healing in Cass's life. Mm-hmm. There's a scene later in Batgirl and I can't remember. I want to say it's actually close to war games when Dylan Horrocks was writing. <gasps> it wasn't in war games. I think it was before that. But I could be wrong. I, I, I just did a quick Google myself and I couldn't find it. But okay. it, it's it's very much similar to this where Babs and Bruce are struggling for Cass's soul. And Cass and Bruce are caught underwater and they save each other. And it's entirely wordless. And that, to me, is why this issue is surprisingly powerful. Because it's all about those emotions, those actions. Mm-hmm. And so I find myself really torn as well between Babs and Bruce. And I I can't pick a sign because Cass is such a unique circumstance. She's such a unique character that I can't say either of them can give her the best path because she's, she contains so much. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and they all have yeah their their biases of of what they <laughs> what they feel is best for her and where that's coming from. I, I feel like the outfits are really interesting. I also find it amusing that once again she's without her mask. But the fact that she on this Mission Impossible mission, which I, I love the. I feel like it's just an amazing mission and it really gets to the silent knight that Cassandra is, that she's able to infiltrate and do all this crazy stuff makes sense. But here, you know, here in the Batcave, she's got her bat outfit on, her Batgirl outfit with no, no mask. And then as she infiltrates, she has her stealth suit that she was wearing in 1415. Um, and then, of course, she's also... She's got civilian guys and she's, yeah. So I feel like there's a lot of symbolism, but when she goes after master, she's back to that stealth. So it's almost like she's not fully one or the other. She's not fully cash. She's not fully Batgirl. I think to a certain extent going after masters, it seems like it is really personal for her, which it seems like from 14 and 15 that no mask. She's in her stealth guys rather than being Batgirl. Cause I think maybe it's less of a bat mission, even though Batman condones it than it is Cass going after this guy that that took away Johnson that she cared for. But yeah, it's just interesting that we man, how far we've come from her always having her mask on to now we we see this this part of her. So, I I feel that tension, that tension is there just in her clothing of her figuring out who she is and I think it also depends on who she's working with in this because if she's with Batman or her locations in the Batcave, she's got the Batgirl outfit on. But if she's on some other mission or if she's on the street or here if she's hanging out with Oracle with her <laughs> her you know civilian identity then then it's different as well. So it's interesting, just the the costuming, which Alan would appreciate. Any thoughts on that? Any insights uh, as to why she wears certain things when she does? Yeah, it's all very deliberate. Puckett and Scott were just so thoughtful in the way they chose um, clothes and expressions and poses and settings, and they worked with the colorist to really highlight things. It's a very muted color palette. It's never, mm. you noted that Babs's hair isn't as red. That's a, that's a choice. It's not just an accident. It's because this is a muted world of grays that Cass has to navigate. And I think the clothes also show, you know, where Cass and Babs are in terms of their connections, because you see here that Cass and Babs both have that handkerchief hairstyle. And so I think Cass is trying to reach out and show connection, <laughs> but she's, she's struggling mm-hmm. uh, because Babs and Cass share a deep bond of love, but they don't necessarily share a deep bond of connection. They don't really understand each other because they're just so different. They, yeah. They're different personalities and traumas and choices. So I really like what this, these closed choices say about them. Yeah. And, and I, I also was able to find that issue. It's uh, Batgirl number 50. So it's a long time for now. But it, okay. that tension uh, between Babs and Bruce and Cass and the connection, all three of them have a shared mm-hmm. love, even though not a shared understanding, is a strong theme through different writers all the way through Cass's career. Yeah. Do you think it would be fair to say that Barbara wants to train... Cass's heart and maybe Bruce is more sort of the physical aspect? No, I wouldn't say that because as I said, Bruce understands Cass's heart. She's given her heart wholly to the mission and Babs wants to see if she can give Cass something more. Okay. Um, 
because uh, looking at Tom King's Batman run, uh, recently wrapped up, although we're getting Bat-Cat soon, which I'm very excited about, Tom King was really trying to struggle with the idea of, can Batman be more than just his vow? He made a vow on the graves of his parents to fight evil and injustice in the city of Gotham. That's all he is. He's a man in a suit who fights gods and demons. And Cass understands that in a way none of the other Bat people do. The other Bat people fight for hope. They fight to stop their parents. They fight because they need to help. Like, that's Tim Drake. He, Batman needs a Robin. He really wants to help Batman. Batman fights because he has to. Cass fights because she has to. And I think that is their hearts, and that connection is true. And Babs wants something more, because that's such, it's such a narrow life. It's such a traumatic life and a dark life. And Babs has hope, and she wants to share that hope. But you, you can't make someone have hope. You have to sure. offer it and hope they take it. Mm-hmm. What about Barbara reaching the Cassandra Kane and Batman reaching the Batgirl? I think that's very true. Okay. Because they're, I, yeah, I feel like that's, you know, her, even in the setting, like the fact that she can talk to her in daylight, they can talk about real things that at some point she'll try to get her to read again. <laughs> yeah. And actually seeing her face versus, yeah, training and, and things like that. Who boy. Well, what, I mean, do you have any thoughts on 1415? Did you read that in I mean, I've read the whole run, not okay. recently. This was the one where the government's sort of been observing her and they're like, oh, she's got these really crazy abilities and sends yeah. a bunch of like men in black after her, right? Correct. And then yeah. she uh, saves an agent and then uh, the agent ends up getting killed. I mean, one of the things I've always been just frustrated on an instinctive level is that Cass fails. Mm. And I think that's on purpose. Puckett and Scott are really interested in this idea of consequences and the idea that good intentions don't always have good outcomes. And Batman and Batgirl almost always have good intentions, but they can't save everyone. Now, my problem is that it feels to me like it ends up feeling like they can't save anyone. Like almost everyone they try to save ends up not being saved. You know, they do save people, but at the end of the day, there's usually someone dead. And I think Johnson's a really big example of one that stuck with me as like, Cass failed. She really wanted to save this guy and she couldn't. And that's just tough for me to deal with. Um, Mm. It's powerful. It wouldn't stick with me if it weren't really powerfully done. But it's one of the reasons why I struggle with the series. Any other thoughts on 17? Damien Scott is such an interesting artist. So much of this issue is his art. Of course, Scott did, Puckett did so much good work on the writing. It's very carefully done. But he lets Scott tell the story. So much of that relationship between Babs and Cass isn't just in the words that Babs is saying, but it's in the little looks. Like, Cass is looking this way and looking that way, and that tells so much. I, I, I understand that I think Scott went on to do, like, concept art and fine art and, and a lot of other stuff, but he was a talent that I think is underappreciated. He sometimes gets into the, the cheesecake and having really large proportions on the women, but he's got so much acting and emotion and, and thoughtfulness and detail in the art. Um, I really appreciated that they got him back to draw the Stephanie Brown Robin story in uh, the Robin 80th anniversary this year. It was really cool to see his art because it's evolved. He's also an artist who is constantly changing. He doesn't look like he did five years ago. He doesn't look like he did 20 years ago. So I just came away from this issue with a real appreciation for that storytelling and emotion that Damien Scott could bring out. 
And it's, I mean, the pressure's on him because <laughs> you have a low verbal character. I mean, the pressure's on the R for sure. Well, what would you give this out of 10 roses? I'll give it an 8 out of 10 roses. Okay. It's a I'm very gonna, impressive issue. I'm going to give it a 7 out of 10 roses. Hashtag sorry, not sorry. Not <laughs> but, I mean, it's, it's your rating. You can't give it... You can't be pressured to give a rating that you don't believe in. I know. Um, well, he, he he pressures me. Okay. <laughs> well, has um, he ever not given a, a 10 out of 10? He, well, he has given things that are not 10 out of 10. Every time, like, my heart skips a beat because I'm just so surprised. So, But he really liked this particular arc. I... That that was his whole ranting email was fourteen and fifteen, and that I did not appreciate it. So I think it was that one. Yeah, I'm yeah. So I'd be interested to hear what he thinks about the conclusion of this seven. I am sure he will send you another email. I sure hope so. Okay, people, grab your kofefe. Oh boy, or, uh, stiff drink you may need to make it through. Oh my. He just threw one back. Oh boy. So even before I even start my <laughs> recap, I do have to say, looking at this cover, what what do you what would you think, Ian, would be in this issue? Well, I wanna mention something. Mm-hmm. I'm on several comic book chat servers on Discord, and in most of them people were like, This issue was sold out. And I talked to my local comic store owner. Um, and he said that people called in, and it was all but one issue was gone in my store. And they said it was because of the cover. And I would say that this oh. cover is awesome. Oh, yeah. Um, based on the cover alone, it is a beautiful issue. And I say the art within is also really beautiful. Looking at the expectations, I would say I'd expect Babs to move forward as Batgirl and negotiate her relationship with uh, her father and with Dick and try and figure out what Oracle means to her. Um, Batman's sort of in the corner. The Joker's always looming. And I don't know why the terrible trio aren't here, but they are. (laughs) I know when I saw this, Alyssa, I was like, do I have to deal with another terrible trio story? (laughs) Ay, ay, ay. Okay, well, I just want to show this off. Joshua does it again. And it apparently worked in terms of sales. I guess it did. So I will say that I know Donovan did a review on... The BatmanUniverse.net on this. I haven't read it because I I don't like other people's ideas to... I read it. ...my head. I'm sure you did. I wondered, I hoped the, the fine lad who had been reviewing wasn't like shamed away. What happened? Why didn't he... No, I think it was just personal life things. You know, people have events okay. and parties. Okay, and- I was worried. I, I felt like I didn't say anything insulting. I just said, like, I wonder why he likes this. I, that was basically it. Okay. So here we go, people. There are... Th- <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay. There are three stories in here. So I'm going to recap all three, and then we're going to break it down. And I, in particular, want to break down the first story. It's the longest anyways, and I feel like almost going page by page. And when we say break... We mean break. Yeah, we do mean break. Things will be thrown across the room. That man that we've seen in Ian's background the entire time, we might not see him again because Ian will go into a rage and hurt him. Okay. So this is Batgirl 50, a.k.a. 102, a.k.a. 205. This is the end of the bane of my existence. Okay. 
First story, Little Wonders, writer Cecil Castellucci, penciler Emanuela Lubacino, inkers Wade Von Graw Badger, Mick Gray, and Scott Hanna, and colorist Jordi Belair. I don't know why they needed three inkers, but there we go. That's usually a sign that they didn't schedule well. Yeah, apparently. Babs and Jim attend JJ's funeral, blaming themselves. They then go to a diner where nostalgia surrounds them and only Babs seems to remember. Jim says Batgirl is a piece of work and is super negative about the state of the city. Babs tries to defend herself as Batgirl, kind of, and the city and yells at him, nearly revealing her ID, her identification. She storms out of the diner after spitting on the floor in disgust. She doesn't really, but practically. She walks through the city, witnessing various forms of protests, talking with citizens who are displeased with Jim and Viejo, particularly because of gentrification of the neighborhoods and that there is not much cleanup after the Joker mess. Blink and you miss her. Ryan Wilder appears and has apparently a rough life and it's snarky to Babs. Babs and Jason hang out at Babs's apartment and things get serious with some apologies and Jason saying he is falling for her, then saying he likes her, which is, <laughs> you know, not the correct order, but whatever. Babs interrupts this intimo- intimate moment once again, considering revealing her secret to Jason when she's called to the Bat Cave, there we go, where Batman updates them as to their finances and how things will change. Batgirl removes her mask for some reason and is upset she doesn't get money from Bruce. BTW, Robin, and Nightwing are also there. But I have no idea where everyone else is that are part of the Batman family. Who knows? Batgirl accuses Bruce of not doing enough or donating to the right places and pressures him into donating money to the Gotham Homeless Fund after he says his hands are tied since he's no longer on the board of Wayne Enterprises. Uh, There's going to be a trigger warning here that I'm actually going to defend Batman. (gasps) So just be aware of that. That I mean, I'm going to defend I'm going to defend every character here against the writer (laughs) because I think every character has been attacked viciously by this, uh, oh, it's this pretty issue. Bad. It's pretty bad. As Batgirl leaves, Nightwing tries to talk to her and she spins circles around him on her bike as if she's filming a scene from Akira while being a jerk. She's a jerk, I'm telling you. We later see her being a hypocrite. I will point you to that page. And also see various scenes of Batgirl slash Babs on the street helping out various situations and various people. At home, she contemplates actively changing for Jason and the city. Before a date with him, she visits him as Batgirl and apologizes for throwing him off a roof. They mend fences finally because it's been the third time that this has happened and hopefully for the last time. She then reappears as Barbara at Jason's apartment and they make a go at a serious relationship. Later at Congresswoman Alejo's office, Babs convinces Viejo to get back to the heart of what her campaign was for and not go to a fundraiser for the police. A rock through the window and her constituents help convince her. There is a march, and while Jason is nervous about security, Babs says he's there, he is a security. Jim appears in a tux, probably on the way to the dinner, and tries to convince Babs to leave, but she actually convinces him to get back to the positive character that we know him to be, and he joins the march. That was easy. On the final page, we see Batgirl vow to use all her skills, no matter the guise, to help Gotham. Next. 
I'm just scroll past all my notes. The next story is Stay Centered, writer Cecil Casalucci and artist Marguerite Sauvage. Babs considers her routines while also contemplating her changing character depending on the situational needs. So if you are a fan of the Enneagram, she'd probably be a three. She gets pulled in many directions, including team-ups with the JLA and JSA, but her mind is also on local threats like a near-traffic accident. She sees somebody throwing up a tag of a radioactive COVID microbe and looks it up, discovering it is a computer virus that is spreading throughout the city. She then goes several places throughout the city, as well as helping the JLA and JSA again, until she puts her full focus on her own story. She points her finger at V. Ross somehow. I feel like a page was missing in my book. I don't know. As the source then goes to a free clinic that Viejo voted to shut down. That doesn't make sense. And fights Ross, who is now in a COVID costume. Batgirl is the antivirus to this nameless foe, and she is happy to have her own rogues gallery. Finally. And she will stay in her own story. Look at that poor guy. Look at that poor guy. I will say a clever thing that maybe Cecil did, I don't know, is that that story was actually one little panel in the previous story when we see a little um, the vignette of her doing stuff. So that was kind of cool. The final one is Game Night, Dungeon Master. Writer C- oh, sorry, sorry. It's called Game Night. The dungeon master was Cecil Casalucci. The bardic illustrations were done by Anike. And the paint master was Trish Mulvihill. <laughs> this is the shortest synopsis I ever wrote. A Dungeons and Dragons session with Babs as game master and Helena, Cassandra, Stephanie, and Dinah transitions to a real-life mission saving trafficked kids, like human trafficking, like modern-day slavery, basically. Oracle runs the mission and encourages the team to think outside the box as they work together, using what they were doing in the D&D session, basically. And after a successful mission, they return to the clock tower and hang out. (laughs) Oh, Ian. Oh, no. Okay, so I think what we're going to do is... Ooh, okay, so we're definitely going to focus on this first story. I feel like we can go page by page. Now, let me, I want to say, people, that it was terrible. It was a terrible issue, but there are a couple bright spots that I do want to talk about. So even though it will mostly be negative on my part, there are going to be some positive things that I will I will bring forward to the show. I don't know if that's true for Ian. Ian, do you have any positive remarks? The art was pretty. Okay. Yeah, certainly I think the art is definitely one of the big draws for me here in every story. In particular, the first two stories, to be honest, and especially uh, Savage's art, uh, who was the artist, or I don't know if it's still going, but Bombshell, she was the artist there. So when I saw it, I was like, oh man, this is amazing. Unfortunately, you know, the content does not fit the art, which is a, a big bummer. And I will also say that there are glimmers, glimmers of the true Barbara Gordon Batgirl that pop through here. But we have to examine whether we can accept them if they're acceptable in a vacuum of like just looking at this moment or do we have to, you know, oh, well, that's true. That, But does that work with everything else? So I just want to say that those are my positive things. So I'll, I'll be sure to point it out. Okay, so let's do this thing, of course, with screen sharing so you can see. And I'm going to try to be better about describing things to listeners because I feel like I don't do a good job about that. But, I mean, we're going to go page by page to a certain extent. 
okay. So the graveyard scene, I don't, uh, I don't know. Do you, I actually, my stuff starts really at that diner, but here we are with them blaming each other. No one else is at this funeral. I would like to say Jason apologizes. Dick Grayson for- should be here. <laughs> if you've read the black mirror, you know that Dick Grayson should yeah. be here. Yeah. And this is unacceptable. And Jason, I don't know. I, I know he, he makes excuses. I can't remember what his excuse was. He does apologize, but I just feel like some support system. But I guess maybe Casalucci just wanted it to be intimate to have these two. But just the fact that, like, oh, my gosh. you know, It's just impossible writing, though. If you want it to be intimate, then start it at the diner. Yeah. Uh, that, well, that was – nah, I would not like that, though. That was a terrible scene. I'm not saying it's good. I'm just saying yeah, if that's I know. the effect you want to achieve, yeah. start at the diner. Don't make it an implausibly – only two people at a funeral when we know for certain that other characters should be there. Oh, man. The issue, I mean, of many, but, you know, he's mourning and he really seems broken up about it. But the fact that he called his son a monster to his face a couple issues prior is just really, it's really interesting to, to see what this, and then, you know, who can blame each other more and then, you know, not really empathy there. It's just really, it's like these two strangers. It's not, it's not Jim and and Babs, which is of course the issue, but I can't necessarily blame Castellucci for that because I mean, she was just, she's just extrapolating what has been there before. Like this whole schism between the two and the tension had already been fuel. I mean, at least Margaret Scott, uh, I don't know if before that, but gone are the days when they were really I mean, Hope Larson basically just ignored Commissioner Gordon, which I thought was just as dumb. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to move. Oh my gosh. So here we go. This is pretty terrible. So, I think one of my biggest issues is, besides attention, is how Jim is portrayed here. And I think you're going to have to enlighten me because I've only been reading Batgirl. So I don't know necessarily the stuff that he, because he was drinking before we saw that sort of issue. So it seems like he's messed up. But he's so negative. Like, there's no hope at all in the city. And it just seems really different, radically different from the the Jim that I've known for, for the longest and I mean, the Batgirl one, I guess that's just in line with what's been happening. But I, I really focus on the on the city and him just like, it's, you know, this city can't be saved. Is there anything that you can illuminate for people who haven't been reading the other Bat Universe titles of like, does this make sense that he is this negative? In a way. Are you familiar with the, the metal uh, event that's going on right now? I'm aware of it, but I couldn't tell you anything of what's going on. So the big villain in metal is the Batman who laughs and he's Batman mm. who's fused with the Joker. And I personally really dislike him, <laughs> but the Batman who laughs infected six characters with evil. And Jim was one of them. Okay. This was about two years ago. And so Jim went crazy and tried to blow up Gotham in a one shot called the commissioner. Hmm. And so he's still shaking that off. He's no, actually, I don't know what his status is because Harvey Bullock's commissioner over in the Batman title, Mm -hmm. but he seems to be moving his way back towards being commissioner in this book. So I don't really know what's happening there, but I mean, he's definitely coming from a place where he's been taken over by an evil entity or an evil version of himself. And he's shaking that off. So there is an argument to be made for him being this negative I think the choice to make him infected was a bad one. It wasn't Castellucci's, that's for sure. But I 
Jim Gordon should be a man who stands for integrity. He's not perfect. Like one of my things that I love about him is that he has feet of clay. He did cheat on his wife with Stara in um, year one. And he does, he doesn't always see, he, he wants to be overprotective of Barbara, you know, in Batgirl year one, he doesn't want her to be a cop. So he sort of overlooks her potential that way. So he's not perfect, but he's a man of integrity. And he's a man who works hard to make the world a better place. And I feel like he doesn't do that at all in this issue. Mm. Until the very end. And even that was just so poorly written that I didn't buy it. Yeah. I don't, you know, I'm just like, I guess he, he, yeah, like you said, still trying to shake it off, but just reading the speech bubbles and I can't even tell what that, I always, I, I guess I shouldn't, but I often try to figure out what the swear is that they use their little symbols. And I'm just like, what, do, what sort of name does he call Batgirl or, you know, what is he, uh. I don't know. It's just kind of rough and more police in the streets to combat the mayhem, which I'll talk about sort of um, real world political issues. Cause I, I have a question about that, but oy, oy, oy. Uh, and then, you know, she, she's had enough. She's had enough. Tells him to shut up. Ay ay ay. And he's pretty, I don't want to say hateful, but man. So Babs, are you okay? You have no idea the lengths that I've gone to protect you. So she's really close to revealing it. And then he's, it's like, sardonic like the biting type of of humor they're pushing papers for a congresswoman kind of couldn't believe that so just not a good (laughs) well i mean the thing is that from uh, jim's perspective what has she done she's a low-level unpaid intern for a congresswoman should have been fired multiple times what what could she have done to protect him in that position yeah like it's just the situation is absurd it's so frustrating so there are two times that she could have revealed her identity and she doesn't. I mean, wh- what does it say that I'm skipping ahead here, but it seems like she's actually closer to revealing her identity as Batgirl to Jason than she is here. Uh, why not pull the trigger? What does it say in my perspective? What does it say that she might be closer to revealing it to Jason? She doesn't, but it seems like she's more eager to do that, to be clean than her own father. I mean, doesn't that show the links? Well, really, the depths that this relationship has fallen? It does. And I think that's largely because Castellucci spent a lot more time developing Jason's relationship with mm. Barbara in this in these 14 issues. I mean, James only really showed up in the last, like, four issues. Mm-hmm. And also, and, and again, that's not entirely her fault. I mean, I have plenty of things that I think Castellucci is responsible for, but... James being infected wasn't her fault, and that's why he wasn't in this title for so long, because he was infected. But it's not satisfying. It's not satisfying at all. Yeah. So she does storm out, just leaves him. It seems like he's making the call me sign in the window there, as if like, oh, it'll be okay, just call me. Do you have any other thoughts on the diner scene as I move on to this and ask a political question? I think it's clear that editorial won't let Batgirl reveal her identity. I think if that's the case, they need to stop letting writers play with the idea. Because mm-hmm. if you're not going to do it, there is no point in bringing it up. It doesn't make anyone happy. And it, well, we'll get to it. But that whole mask, like taking her mask off, I mean, what is, I don't know. Like, I guess she has the freedom to do it in front of the Bat family, but not her own father. It's a far That cry. scene is its own kettle of fish. I am. Oh, yeah, we're going to. so much to say about it, that one. folks. He said it. It's a fine kettle of fish. Yes. No, we're going to we're going to parse that little puppy. Uh-huh. But uh-huh. Uh, what was I going to say? I lost it. It's it's probably You're going to ask your political question, right? I was going to Oh, before the political question, I was just going to say this is this is a far cry from one of my favorite issues in 
the Burnside run where she teams up with Jim when Jim was Batman. That was one of my yeah, favorites. and I was just thinking about that. Even if this is a, bat, uh, a James Gordon who's um, you know recovering from being infected, he knows Batgirl. He knows that Batgirl's a hero. He, sh- he knows that Batgirl cares about him personally. Mm-hmm. This is so false. This conflict is so false. Yeah. And it, uh, he appears to have forgotten when uh, he did this very same thing in New 52. So, yeah, short-term memory. Yep. Yeah, so my political question is, I, I'm looking at these scenes here. I'm looking at, of course, what he was talking about, almost like a martial law state. And then, of course, we get to, they, now it doesn't say defund the police, but you know she's saying don't go to these $1,000 plate or something like that, fundraiser for the police. But we're tearing down a statue. I don't know who that is. Maybe it's a a Gotham founder, but because I live in Virginia and I'm sure there are other states, but, you know, Richmond, Charlottesville, of course, we've got the the controversy. I mean, I live in Minneapolis, so I... Yeah, I'm there very you go. So, aware of what's going yeah, on. so the the controversy of the Confederate statues and, and pulling them down. So I'm kind of seeing that, you know, I'm seeing this here with with protesting, and then it seems like there are a lot of people of color in this particular issue. Uh, do you feel like she's? I don't know, Casalucci is she kind of skirting some real world political issues? Um, oh yeah, and, she's okay. trying to, um, but okay. I think that's that's worse because. <laughs> Um, it's, it's very interesting. Donovan and I had some really good conversations on this issue on our server and we come from really different places. Donovan's very much a man of the left and I'm a man of the right. And so obviously we have different evaluations of the actions that are being portrayed, but we mm-hmm. both agreed that there's a lot of political arguments presented in this comic. Yeah. But all of them are presented on such a shallow and sophomoric yeah. level. This is not respectful to either side of these discussions. Yeah. This is just cheap references to current events without any depth, without any explanation of why they're important to Batgirl. Like, it's just, it's like slapping a slogan on a t-shirt and saying that you've done something to make the world better. This is slapping an image in a comic. It's not telling a story about the image. And Mm -hmm. I think that's disrespectful, whether you agree with the people in these images or not. Yeah, that's why I use that word skirting. Like, I feel like, oh, she's superficially trying to discuss some things. And Barbara Gordon, I think, is certainly a woman, a woman of the people. Oh, she's a woman, a woman of the people. You know, way back when she had her um, social services job with research and development. So this fits with her, but for her just to like walk down the street and like, I'm going to, I'm going to join in on this. There's got to be more forethought to it. And then I get a bit of a whiplash because it seems like there's some positive, like, you know, let's go for, you know, I don't know, protesting and everything it, it, positive for change. And then whatever that statue is doing, I can't tell, but the people are mass. So that's, that's a bit iffy, but then we switch and, and you're showing people throwing rocks through windows and mob, the word mob being used. I don't know if thug was used, but it's just interesting that it's, she might be superficial and sophomoric about it, but I also think that she's not necessarily picking a side. She's like dancing over both of them. I'd but, say that's know. fair. I think she is trying to present more than one side, but I think that the shallowness really hurts whatever she's trying to do. Yeah. And honestly, do you really feel like Batgirl 50 is the time to bring this stuff in? No. No. 
Yeah, it should have been around for a while. And again, there are glimmers in this, but the fact that this is the last issue, it's like maybe she could do whatever she could, but we should have been seeing this Barbara Gordon longer and then, yeah, delving into things. Okay, moving on, I think. We're going to get to the blink. Okay, let's talk about this. So I found out that this lady was going to be in it, Ryan Wilder, and... I had questions because, number one, where's Kate Kane? That's my first question. Number two, <laughs> who is this and why should I care? Number three, is this a 60s flashback situation where we're trying to have her in the comics and on TV? And number four, who's the intended audience? Because not everyone who watches the show is going to read and vice versa. I felt like this was, I mean, if I hadn't known the significance of Ryan Wilder, I would have been like, who the devil is this and why do I care? I'm still kind of like, why do I care? But this was, I don't know, street urchin. She's got a bad attitude. (laughs) Do Do you have any thoughts on this? This is rather interesting. I think that this is cynical and sloppy marketing. I actually would argue that you can probably see that this was a a couple pages that were thrown in later because it doesn't Mm -hmm. connect to anything before or after. So I think this could be why they have extra inkers because they're just like, Uh, draw these extra pages and they got a different inker for it. It's just pointless. And I don't think it even worked because as I said, when I talked to the people at my store, they said everyone was talking about the cover. The cover is the best marketing because Josh Middleton has such a good reputation yeah, and it is a gorgeous cover. You. Yeah. So this was marketing gone awry and I think it's very unsatisfying. Yeah. Like, I don't know anything about Ryan Wilder that I didn't before. Like, I know that she's a black woman. I know that she is connected to the color red. Other than that, I had, I have no information about her character. So it doesn't educate me more on who she is or what she will be in the show. So Mm -hmm. I think it's very bad marketing. And I will say number five, Batgirl is not Batwoman. They shouldn't be equated. So I don't know why you would throw in a little prompt for Batwoman either. Kind of makes me angry. Okay. Moving on from Ryan Wilder. Mm, We've got this scene. I don't know if, do I have anything in this? I mean, some things did not make me as angry as others. I was just kind of reading. Do you have any thoughts on this dinner scene? I mean, we're going there again. So many personal conversations that we've had, but we've never gotten past it. So here's yet another one. I think this was very poorly structured. Babs basically comes to a decision point in this scene and then appears as Batgirl and has her apology scene and then goes back as back as Barbara and has her rom- romantic scene. And I'm just like, that, that's inefficient writing. Yeah. And I... I Nothing in this scene really convinced me more that Babs was at a place or Jason was at a place where they could have the Batgirl um, reconciliation scene. I think that you could have just gone to the Batgirl reconciliation scene and then gone to the romance scene between Babs and Jason without this extra scene. I just think it's inefficient. It's pretty. I like, again, I love Emanuela Lupacino's art. It is gorgeous, but it's in service of just such an inefficiently written story. Yeah. It's it's hard for me also just to reconcile this Jason with, you know, the Batman and Robin Jason. And 
I guess I should just sort of pull on, to, you know, pull from my Christian <laughs> life and be like, well, everyone, you know, deserves redemption. And here he is. He's been given a chance and we should give him some grace and everything, which I, you know, I guess I, I'm just reading this narration box. He really has been there for me and for Gotham. I'm thinking, what what has he done for Gotham? <laughs> I mean, he has he has been trying to protect Alejo. Yeah. And I think we're supposed to see that as him seeking to, I mean, because his, his whole thing was he was manipulating the political system in Batman Eternal so that he would become commissioner and, and institute martial law and all that stuff. But now he's trying to do that democratically through uh, helping Alejo and protecting her from people like who he was. And so I can see the argument. I just don't think it's been executed super well. And this one, I think Marigold Scott did a better job of redeeming Jason mm-hmm. uh, because she... I can't remember if Margaret Scott was interested in Babs and Jason, uh, Babs and Jason having a romantic relationship, but she was interested in sort of trying to redeem Jason. She, she made him a hard character. He was a a harsh and he had a dark perspective and he did kill that one villain. Yeah. But yeah, but he was acting in a way to protect a politician. He was acting. I I, I think that there was a sense that he had made a choice to be a better person than he Mm. was in Batman Eternal. And so I appreciated that. I think they focused too much on the romance and not enough on him, you know, being a better person in Castellucci's run. And that's hurting the scene. Yeah. Man, apologies. So many apologies in this issue. It's very interesting. Okay. And, and I, would, I would like to say yeah. that for all my criticism of the writing, I think that Batgirl's apology to Jason and Jason's apology to Babs were well done. I think those were good writing. I... I I don't criticize those, and I do think I actually will praise those. I think those were good scenes. Okay, great, Scott. So this is rather interesting. So I, while I do wonder where the rest of the Bat family is, I can understand that we've got these, I guess, quote-unquote core members here. I first want to ask, what in, what in the world? Why does Barbara remove her mask? No masks, no lies. The, the narration says, I want to be fully present and <laughs> Nightwing asks what she's doing he's like what you all know who I am is this a bit weird is this just me no it's not just you everyone's okay. written entirely out of character it's so stupid like <sighs> why does why does Batman need to have this meeting like that's that's another thing I, I have about that that romantic thing that's interrupted that's inefficient writing and she gets out of it by having a completely unnecessary meeting. Like Batman doesn't call people to say, Oh, we don't have enough money anymore. Batman calls people when they're fighting the Joker or they're fighting two face. He does not call to say, Oh, I guess your allowance is going to get cut. So offensive to Batman. He's not this stupid. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, I'm going to trigger warning. I'm going to defend Batman, but I I will say that it's funny. You call this a meeting, which it, it is. Uh, and then it was unnecessary is we have jokes, basically. Well, you know, as teachers, we have, there are so many meetings. But, you know, can this meeting be done in an email? This could have been done in an email, basically. But I actually find it, I don't know if offensive is the word. I use that so many times during my recap of 47, that she's offended that she's not getting money. Because the Barbara Gordon backroll I know would not want an allowance from him. She would be making it on her own. She did make it on her own with Gordon Clean Energy. 
So I found that really interesting that she swears about that. And uh, No, I agree. I think that's incredibly offensive yeah. on so many levels because, okay, Tim's a minor. He can't get a job. So someone has to look after him financially, mm-hmm. even if he is the superhero. Yeah. And Dick is Bruce's son. There is nothing wrong with him wanting to provide for his children. And yeah. I also agree. Babs is an independent woman. Now, I think this would have been better written if Babs had said, you know, in her internal monologue or something, you know, Bruce offered me a stipend. I chose not to take it because yeah. I thought that I could make it on my own. Or, you know, Babs could just say, I also am funded for my vigilante activities only. Like there are mm-hmm. so many better ways to write this scene. Yeah. But instead she makes Batman look like a thoughtless jerk. Yeah. Tim and Dick look like lazy loafers when Tim is a minor. I must stress this. He is not someone who can pay for his own stuff because he can't get a job. And Dick is Bruce's son. It is not wrong for him. <sighs> yeah. This whole yeah. scene is so bad. I mean, it's basically portraying everyone like they're, uh, I don't know, sexist, basically, that we're not, I'm not giving you the girl money. So that's kind of interesting. So then we, with Batman, so this is when I'll defend I mean, couldn't him. you even say that it's more sexist if a man pays for a woman? Like, <sighs> Well, I mean, if you were giving it equally to all of them. No, I, w- I would agree with that. But it's just, I don't think Bruce would do this. And I don't think that. Babs would have this reaction. Oh, no, no. I'm, I agree. I, I will also say that, you know, she getting on him for not giving money where it is most needed. I find it, I just don't see that at, at in Bruce's character at all, that he would not be looking for the people or, you know, like the, the homeless fund. Like he would absolutely be donating to that because uh, he just mentions Gotham Academy, Gotham Museums, Gotham Hall, all of that stuff. The obvious choices is what she says from the top down. He's absolutely someone who is probably like bottom up, really looking looking to help those. So I will defend Batman here and say that he was made a jerk unnecessarily, and that this is really out of written out of character. Oh, great, Scott. This is it. This is it. Oh, boy. So I can't even. I can't even. I don't know if this was when I started laughing at my workplace because of how ridiculous it was, but this is probably the worst that I've ever seen Barbara written. Like, in my head, I called her a wench because I thought that she's terrible if i use bad words i would call her you know what okay so for all her stuff about masks off i must be in the moment she keeps her helmet on she's so disrespectful the dick here yeah no eye contact so let's see she's just dismissive of him from the word go because he wants to talk to her and she says there's not much to talk about uh he's trying to explain everything and, uh, you know, I, I think I should get a pass. She says for fighting me in a cage, for blaming me about the hospital, for forgetting me. And then he's like, that was the Joker. You know that. So for someone who's gone through trauma herself and also has had, you know, some some bad moments and people have forgiven her, should she not be more empathetic and understanding of his plight? And Dick Grayson, of all people, you know, with whom she's got an extremely intimate relationship, whether it's romantic or not, 
And then this, I, what is she doing? Spinning around on her motorcycle. I've, I've never seen Barbara Gordon act as much of a jerk as I have here. Uh, it also, I don't, (laughs) I don't know if it's worse than I've ever seen Batman, but it's just really bad. And then this whole, she throws B, B, is that her name? B in his face, in his face of, you know, oh my. And then the worst line though, people is do the work earn my friendship again that's the worst that's the worst man forgive him forget see there's no grace there's no grace in this issue is one of the the biggest uh stuff yeah let's keep it strictly professional um this is the worst i have ever seen barbara gordon written the the worst person that i would not want to associate with i would not want to read this oh someone's coming up the street. what do you think about this particular well, I, I 100% agree with everything you just said. Babs is so poorly characterized. And I also want to highlight that that line where Dick was like, oh, I think I should get a pass for this. Like, that is writing Dick to be as unsympathetic as possible. That, that is such a clumsy and ugly line for him to say. Like, the Dick Grayson I know would be apologetic, even though it wasn't his fault. And the Barbara Gordon I know would be like, we come from a shared place of trauma. If she needed time, she'd say, I need time, but you weren't yourself. Like, she would know. This is beyond a lack of understanding of these characters. It's, this scene is pointless. What, what point does it serve other than to show that Babs and Dick aren't going to be together? Maybe that's the point. They wanted to, to hammer home that Jason mm-hmm. and Babs are right for each other. So Dick is a clueless idiot and Barbara is a, a cruel wench. Like, yeah. it makes both of them look terrible. And so unnecessarily. Yeah. And then what makes it worse is that the very next page, the very next page, we see her thoughts. um, And what does she say here? I want to, my little zoom is uh, in the way here. I want to help Gotham in all the ways I can. And in order to really help, one has to really listen. Ways that go beyond defeating villains and using my fists, helping with mental health issues with compassion. So the very next page, she's hypocritical to what, yeah, she had, I mean, that's what we want her to say. We want that Barbara Gordon, but that's certainly the far cry from what we had seen before. So very bizarre. I will say, so this is one of my small glimmers, one of my small glimmers, seeing her, seeing her here, street level, helping people out. No need is too small, as she herself says. That's absolutely the type of Barbara Gordon Batgirl that I think I would like to see, that I know I would like to see. And I'll get back to my, I want that overall, like the void. Can we just look at this and be like, oh, that's, yeah, that's, that's it. Or are we just looking at it in a void? But we see all sorts of, you know, what we see her on different missions. We got some clowns. I don't know if they're affiliated with the Joker or not. She is working with the support group, which I had a ding dong moment where I remembered when Gail Simone came on New 52, we found out that she, didn't she have, is it a PhD or some degree in forensic psychology? Do you remember this? This was like added to it. I don't remember if it was a PhD or like she was working on it. But then I thought, oh, wow, we're back to that. She's beating people up. She's helping helping the little person. She's doing some self-defense classes. Here at this bottom right-hand corner, the COVID costume, that is, that's, like I said, that story is extrapolated in the next, the next story, right? Helping the GCPD with security. Like, that's absolutely, I mean, do you agree or disagree with that, that this, looking at this, 
we're getting to the essence of Barbara Gordon Batgirl, this vignette. And and the frustrating thing is this this whole series could have been like the run instead mm. of going into a weird alternate dimension and fighting a dragon and oh, um Don't you know having that. a horrible killing joke retelling like yeah. we could have had an issue about Bab starting a self defense clinic mm-hmm. we have an issue about I'm not a fan of the Vi Ross story but that could have been its own issue and it would have probably have been better than the alternate dimension story yeah. Bab's doing tech support for the GCPD that could have been an issue too like. All of this could have been the run, but instead it's a montage and we got a run where Babs is reactive and consistently incompetent. Yeah. I just remember that at the end of 49, didn't she quit? Yes. Yes, she did. But this issue makes no reference to it. So I completely forgot. Okay. I also, <laughs> that's why, yeah, I was bringing it up. It's as if she never quit. Okay. This just gets to this particular scene here. I, I too, think that it is well done. I think it's well choreographed. I think, you know, for once, it is pretty authentic and, and um, getting to the, the heart of these particular characters. Though, you know, if this had happened, I would like it for it to have been the one and only time. But I feel like we've been repetitively doing these, come you know, have a come-to-Jesus heart-to-heart sort of moment between these two characters that it's just so much it's been too much so had it been once i think it would have been great but they saved the last one for like the third time and that's issue 50 well and and here's a frustrating thing i i think this is a good scene but i'm frustrated with the motivation that i feel like babs has been in a place for quite a while where she could apologize to him and i don't like that it's motivated by romantic feelings like i feel mm-hmm. like babs should have felt like the right time was when she saw him, you know, working for Alejo and trying to make the city a better place in a legitimate way. Mm-hmm. So even in the good stuff, Castellucci has structured it in a frustrating way. Yeah. And she, I don't, I think it was this one that I was talking about that she felt like she could change herself for Jason and for the city. And I can see it, I think, for Gotham, you know, changing your tactics morphing to whatever the need the city is. But to do that for a guy, I think sends a bad message. So I do have an issue with that. We do get, oh, oh, this romantic scene, of course. So they're giving it a real go. I don't know what that's going to look like in Batman, to be honest. I guess we'll find out. So Alejo, she's still working there. She should have been fired, honestly. But uh, this is actually a character that I felt like, because this is just issue 50, so we can say it. I feel like there are so many loose threads she seemed to have a good mission and now it got jumbled up. I don't know. Somehow, like it seemed like she was, she had a positive mission and then there was something sort of fishy going on. I think this was all in Margaret Scott, but nothing was really fleshed out. And then we kind of lost track of her and now we're, we're just ending. I mean, I guess she's coming back to her initial mission, but do you feel like this character, was there any, positive bright spot for you with Alejo or did we reach anything? Was she compelling to you? Do you feel like there were aspects that we should have explored, but weren't explored? Alejo didn't do much for me as a character because I don't think she ever was real enough to the writers. Mm. I know it's a comic and that scenes (laughs) where you focus, where you explain just how much of a politician's life is fundraising. Like this comment about, the cops are having a deal and it's a thousand dollars a plate. 50% of a politician, an elected politician's time is spent trying to raise money. It is required. I don't like that, but 
all politicians do it. It doesn't matter what party you are. You have to raise money because if you don't, you won't be able to continue trying to make legislative changes. So treating fundraising like a dirty thing when it is quite literally mandatory is just shows how shallow the understanding of politics is in this comic. And so that's what I mean about Alejo not feeling real. They don't give her the real dilemmas. They give her these fake dilemmas where there's a clear right choice. That's not how politics works. Mm-hmm. That's not how you make a politician uh, interesting. Like, I think that the West Wing is an overly idealized portrayal of politicians, but it, even that shows that there is no just one right answer. This comic always portrays Alejo as having the right answer. Uh, and there's no difficulty in finding it except for this manufactured difficulty that oh, she's lost her way. No, she has responsibility. She has things she has to do as a politician and portraying that as if it's bad and all she needs to do is kick back and hang with the people. That's not what a politician does. That's not how a politician actually makes changes. Yeah. And I just wonder when she got off track on her initial mission because it seems like she was going to be good for the city and then it just took a turn. Well, I think Castellucci's been seeding in um, elements when Alejo's been there. But as I said, it's just... It's these false dilemmas where there's always the right choice, so it doesn't feel real. So, yeah. and and I think there was a potential for Barbara Barbara to step into that Congress congressional seat. Uh, I feel like I mean I don't know maybe it was not allowed, but there were opportunities to be sure. But it's just interesting to see her on the sidelines, um, not doing much. I mean, she was technically supposed to be kind of the social media advocate, which is interesting. And I will say that, well, I, I guess I'll wait till the next issue, but there's something weird that was written that didn't seem in line with Alejo at all. But uh, the rock through the window, look at all that. Okay, so I would say with this, it's very interesting. Man, how easy was it for Jim to turn around? And then I say James Gordon uh, character assassination was his entire run, I would say, of Batgirl. But yeah, like it- seriously, James hates black tie things. He's a man who who knows the streets, he knows the people. Anyone who's really read the classic stories, you know, the, the Chuck Dixon runs of Detective Comics and GCPD in the 90s, and then Greg Rucka's work with, with James Gordon in, you know, New Gotham. He's a man of great compassion, great empathy, and he understands. And he's also just not a fussy guy. So this idea that he's like, I'm a man, I'm the establishment. That's not Jim. That's not who he is. Mobs are dangerous. It can turn when you least expect it. You're on the wrong side, Barbara. This was all, yeah, kind of political. I was reading it like that, current events, basically. But she's able to convince him. You know, you have the experience that our side needs. I need that. I need join us, Dad. And then he actually does. He does, even though I think he, it's interesting, Alejo is welcoming because I think they had a poor relationship. So that's an interesting change. But do you feel like this? Oh, it makes sense. Yeah, of course. It would take just a couple words and he would uh, join that side. Well, it doesn't even deal with the central conflict of James thinking that a Batgirl killed his son. Like, it's it's so shallowly resolved. Nothing of substance is dealt with. I mean, to be honest, this whole, this story, I think, is several short little stories put together short scenes that don't really transition from one to the other. But we get to this. This is my last glimmer moment. 
let's see here. Uh, my idea of how to, this is the last page. My idea of how to be there for Gotham has grown over the years. And one day my implant won't work anymore or I'll grow old. And I'm figuring out a way to use all my skills to truly help in a meaningful way. But no matter what the future brings in any of my guises, I know I will always be a service. I've always known that being a hero doesn't always mean wearing a mask. Gotham, come what may, I'm always yours. That right there for me is pitch perfect Barbara Gordon Batgirl. Agree or disagree? I think so. Um, it's, it reminds me of that moment in the Benson's run on Batgirl and the Birds of Prey where she, you know, there's that scene of I'm Oracle, I'm Batgirl, I'm both. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that's decent Barbara writing. I just think it doesn't connect to the Barbara she actually wrote. <laughs> no, it doesn't. I mean, the fact that it's, you know, the, the final page of the first story of the last issue is, is, is a problem. But, you know, when I read this, yeah, I'm looking at... Being a congresswoman, losing that congressional seat. Well, I'm not just going to sit here and wallow. I'm going to work, you know, with social services department. Um, and yeah, oh, I no longer have the use of my legs. I'm not going to sit here and wallow in that. I'm going to be Oracle. Like, that's exactly what I felt like with reading this. But it's hard because this is where the void question comes into. I was, I was sort of thinking about that because can we just look at this, look at the scene and be like, this is great. Or is it just, it's, too, it's, it's hard to do that because of this entire run of the rest of this issue. Can you not look at this and be like, yeah, this is great without thinking about uh, the rest of what's <laughs> been going on. It's just such a disappointment. Yeah. I, I was really hoping that I could buy this comic and have like a nice capper to a run that otherwise I thought was disappointing. Yeah. And I couldn't. This isn't a comic I, I'd be happy to have in my collection. Yeah. And we'll talk about her legacy at the end for sure. Uh, we're going to rate the whole issue, so we won't do that. I'll probably ask you how each of the stories rank in order. We're not going to go page by page and stay centered. I, I just really wanted to do that with the, the first story. But as much as I disliked the first story, I have some real issues with her characterization here. The different persona, she feels like she needs to modify herself given the situations. Dick is saying very strange things to her. Stay back, Batgirl. I'd die if anything happened to you. All of a sudden, she is working with the JSA JLA where there wasn't any rumbling of that before. I liked, would have liked to have known that. Why would anyone confuse her with Hawk Girl? I found that offensive. The Supergirl situation was almost comical. But it's still offensive because I was thinking back to Crisis on Infinite Earths because Marsh Manhunter's like, oh, we got this Batgirl, Supergirl's with us. In what world is Supergirl a substitute for Batgirl? They have completely different skill sets. Yeah, nonsensical. I couldn't tell you. Uh, Man Bat appears in the picture. Uh, is he running around the Bat universe? Uh, yeah, he's actually sort of an antihero with Justice League Dark. Oh, good to know. I It did flash back to the Bronze Age for me, so I, I enjoyed that. But yeah, this whole, oh my gosh. And the fact she she's bemoaning the fact she doesn't have a rogues gallery. And I was thinking to myself, who are you? Yes, you do have a rogues gallery. Yeah. Oh my goodness. I was so <laughs> offended by that. 
She has so many rogues. Yeah, but you know, now she's got the COVID Avenger, so she. Um, yeah, that's she, a stellar addition to her. Rogues I don't know if that's there. her name, but it looks like a COVID sort of thing. So that. But Viros, that's such a. Well, I don't do. Is there something I should know about this particular person? No, I mean they're created for this thing, but Viros okay. is a pun. Like it's just a lazy pun for virus. Yeah. So I don't even know. This is what I was like blinking. You miss it. All of a sudden, she she she's looking at this poll worker, and she gathers from that one panel that this poll worker is obviously the COVID Avenger. And I got very confused. Like, how did she come up with all that, that she's the person? Because the writer told her. Okay. That sounds good to me. It's Um, like in the Muppets movie. We read the script. Oh, gosh. Alejo, this is what I was talking about. Alejo voted to close a free clinic. That confused me because that that doesn't sound like her platform. No. Like, again, it's these stupid false... (laughs) False conflicts where there's the right choice and the wrong choice. And if a character is lost their way, they choose the wrong choice. And it's inexplicable because all right-thinking people think it's just shallow political writing. Yeah. I will say, you know, this story had a close to Burnside feel to it. Like, oh, an original character. It's grounded. But that's about it. That is about it. Her being pulled in different directions, feeling that, you know, she doesn't have one stable identity. Having all these teams vying for her out of nowhere was really interesting. And then deciding, you know, she's going to basically say, you know what? I've got to do my own thing and and also leave them in the lurch, which is pretty bad, even though she's going to tell her own story just to get her own rogue was pretty bad. So the positive thing from this story is, I thought it was clever that Cecil Castellucci extrapolated that one panel from, I thought that was clever, and the art is beautiful. But other than that, I uh, I did not like this story at, at all, I think. I agree. The way they character assassinated Babs to be so, I mean, she's just... It's like one of those rom-coms where it's like, oh, my boss is so mean to me. But Babs doesn't work for these people. And yeah. Martian Manhunter would not be so stupid as to say, oh, yes, we have Supergirl. We don't need Batgirl. That is, that's assassination of Martian Manhunter's character. He is yeah. a Justice League member who cares about justice. He, he wouldn't do that. Yeah. He'd be like, like the more the merrier. Yeah. You, you don't build a character up by tearing other characters down. And that's really my, my biggest complaint about this issue as a whole. In the first story, too, is she built Babs up by tearing Jim Gordon and Batman and Nightwing and yeah. Tim Drake down. That's not good writing. Yeah. Boy. Okay. Uh, I think that's all I have on that second story. Ooh. Anything from you on this second story? No, I mean, I, I think Marguerite Savage drew a really, really pretty grat girl, um, just like Emanuela Lupacino did. But the, the, everyone was so dumb, and I don't think these characters should be dumb. So we have our final story, Game Night, of course, which at first I had horrible flashbacks to the dragon story you said, and I thought, what is this? But I will overall say that this was cute and inventive. It was also nice to see all, I'll say the girls, uh, just as like a camaraderie thing, all the girls together again. Overall, I have only positive things to say. I think it wasn't like necessarily the most exciting thing. And I do wonder really, you know, does it make sense for 
Stephanie, for instance, to sing a song to distract someone. I mean, they are nope. thinking outside of the box, but, but it was uh, creative at least. I'm trying to find the positive here. Uh, well, I, you, maybe I just you, have a really nerdy criticism here. Babs, oh, Babs, not so if you roll a 15, that's um, a 75% <laughs> roll. If you can't hit with a 15, that means your DM has set the difficulty chance way too high. The only person who hits is someone who rolls a 20, which is a 1 in 20 chance. It is ridiculous that you have a 1 in 20 chance of beating what seems like a fairly standard uh, monster. Now, Bab says, it's tough. This is not a boss fight. They clearly are just starting. So you don't throw them at a boss to start with. And you don't set the DC so only someone who rolls perfectly can beat it. It's Mm. so... I know that's incredibly nerdy, but... You helped me learn something. mm. Man... Well, I mean, besides some of the things that, hey, may not make sense, what do you think overall of this particular story? I mean, this is the least offensive of the stories, but it's still, like, they have Cass saying, I want to kill the monster. Cass would never say she wants to kill anything. But, like, Cass has an an entire issue of her series called No One Dies Tonight. Oh, she sure does. That's a whole issue. It's very iconic. She would not, even in a game, say, let's kill the monster. That's not Cass's character. So I thought that that was a frustrating lack of understanding of Cass's, like a very fundamental part of Cass's character. Now, that's, I agree with you of the 2001, Cassandra. But doesn't Orphan, uh, would you say that there's a difference? Yes. um, I think it's this. So her big thing in Detective Comics was feeling like she's a villain um, because she killed Harper's mother. And Harper. Um, Harper. <laughs> <laughs> I miss uh, her. I mean, she's coming back next week in the punchline one shot. Okay. Not as Bluebird though. I think she's just Harper still. But Cassandra Kane just has such a value for for life. In and Tynan really knows that. He he really highlighted that she strove to be a hero. That she didn't give in, and that the Bat meant so much to her that when Batwoman killed. Clayface in Detective Comics, she tore the bat off of Batwoman mm. because the bat means no killing. The bat means being a hero and being better. And so I think that that is still really important to her in the current continuity. I will say, just as someone who is interested, I, that's like the wrong term, but who has a passion for fighting against human trafficking. It was a really weird phrasing, this one bubble. It says, inside there are a bunch of kids, looks like they're trafficking. So uh, just to be more specific with the pronouns they use, you know, maybe they're being trafficked or maybe the men in there are trafficking the kids just like, because not many people know what human trafficking is. Hey, newsflash people, slavery still exists and that's what human trafficking is. So that's just like a little nitpick from someone who... uh, cares about that but you know honestly to see these ladies girls together again i mean i really liked it it's not like an amazing story but just the fact that they were together and it was fun and uplifting i thought was a positive aspect to it and then they come home and they hang out which is great but all of a sudden you know even though she was oracle she decided to put on her batgirl outfit which was bizarre and then she's back to normal here well i guess all of them are Okay, anything else on this final story? I was a little disappointed that um, 
Stefan Cass had a whole story about them putting the bat on their costumes oh, yeah. and then it's not on here. So I thought that was over. a little disappointing. Possibly this issue was, you know, penciled before yeah. um, that decision was made because that was made fairly late in the editorial process. Mm-hmm. But it is disappointing. Oh, Gotham love story. Shipperific. I'll have to look that up. <laughs> that looks like kind of a fun story. I know. I have no idea what it's about, but can her love thaw his frozen heart? That sounds amazing. Okay. Well, sir, got some wrap-up questions on this. We'll rate it, and then we'll head toward – we'll speed towards the end of this episode. Issue 50, it's in the books. Backroll, it's over with. I don't know for how long. What legacy – does Batgirl? Oh wow! What legacy? <laughs> what legacy does Batgirl leave behind? I think she leaves a legacy of reactiveness and incompetence for the last Ooh, at boy. least year. Okay, reactive. Wow. And who are these people? Can you like say guest starring blank and blank like this person? <laughs> okay, we're gonna. It call. is my housemates. Okay. Well, did they know that you're going to be doing this? They did, but uh, unfortunately, I'm in a high-traffic area. That's okay. Did they know that they were going to be on the YouTube? Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Sorry. Okay. Well, guest starring uh, Anonymous 1 and Anonymous 2, thank you for joining us. Okay. Oh, boy. Yeah, what legacy does she leave behind? I think, you know, let's look at this with new reader eyes. And also veteranize. So veteranize, I think she leaves behind a legacy of who constantly trying to restart her life and not necessarily understanding who she is deep down. I would say uh, just a confused, a confused back girl. Did you? That, use that, that is the most. Uh, that is the most positive way I could say what I said. I still okay. stand by reactive and incompetent. Reactive and incompetent. Yeah. New reader eyes. I wonder about this. Maybe someone who. Oh does fail like maybe she's the most human backroll that there's been like really human flawed and uh is just constantly trying to reshape herself and be better maybe that's the new reader eye i don't know it'd be interesting to talk to the gentleman who had been doing the reviews to see what he would say but it's they're disparate runs i mean so it started with hope larson and that was all about let me globe trot around Eastern Asia, or just Asia, I I suppose. Oh, I think it was Eastern Asia. And learn new things and understand myself. And then Margaret Scott was, let me better understand myself and also lose everything that I had before with Gordon Clean Energy and Frankie, who's that? Alicia, who's that? And then with this run, uh, I guess it was trying to understand herself and pushing people away. Hmm, interesting. I, that's if I were to analyze that. So it's, it's, yeah. Hooey, oi, oi. Yeah, I don't know. But Batman, that Batman 100, you know, that's a powerful image of her taking off her mask and, and stepping up and being Oracle. I mean, I just want her to be a strong character again. She's just so wishy washy. And that's really what I mean by reactive. She doesn't make plans, she has stuff happen to her, and then she reacts to the stuff that happens to her. The Oracle and the Barbara Gordon that I know, like, Batgirl Year One, still my favorite Barbara Gordon Batgirl story. I love Birds of Prey better for the Oracle stuff, but for Batgirl, Batgirl Year One is my favorite. Mm -hmm. And she's constantly making plans. She does have to improvise and change on the fly, but she has plans. She 
She does research. She's not just responding to things. Mm -hmm. And that's what I love about a mature hero like Bargora. And that was her first story. Like she came in with so much intellect and so much to prove. And I think she did prove herself. And I think this whole 50 issue run is her unproving herself. Yeah. Yeah. I did ask the question, what would people find in reading this in the future when they find it in the quarter bin? Well, it's definitely going to be in the quarter bin, except for the uh, Middleton variant covers. Those will probably still go. <laughs> yeah. I think, uh, I don't know. Because I, I go back and I read like the, the Chuck Dixon Ro- uh, Robin comics, which is a similar type of, of, of story where it's a lot of you know villains of the week fighting some, some gangsters. Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. not like super serious stakes. But those tend to be much more consistently fun because Tim was written to be likable, but flawed. Whereas Babs is supposed to be likable, but flawed, but she's just not very likable in most of these, especially the last year of stories. Yeah. I mean, there are people that are intentionally jerks like Guy Gardner or Damian Wayne. And to have, you know, my beloved Barbara Gordon act the way that she did in this particular issue just blows my mind and breaks my heart. I don't know if it's worth 25 cents. It, it would be interesting. I wonder, you know, you went through the, the the Stephanie and the nice thing about doing that is that there's this consistency because you could read it. Were you reading it one a week? Is that how you did it? Yeah, I read one a week for 34 weeks. Okay. Because so I, had, I had some extra issues. In there. Oh, gotcha. So that's nice just because you're, you're not having that month wait. Like if I were to start back and read from Hope Larson to the end, you know, every week maybe or, or every day as, as you're doing currently with Hawkman, I just feel like it'd be even, my mind would be boggled. Like there's not really a consistency. You could have been a new reader for each run, each author, and I think you would have been fine because it was just like everyone's starting over. It was, it was like a number zero every time. My final question, what do you think, well, how does it compare with other runs? I, I think we can skip that. We, we both know what that is. But have we, well, actually, I want to ask you because Carolyn and, and I both agree that I think this is probably the worst Barbara Gordon that we have read. How would you rank this particular run? I'm talking about the Castellucci, unfortunately. But. You know, I would tend to agree. I think okay. that it has... I think it is fair to say that there were editorial dictates like Oracle being a villain was an editorial dictate and Joker being in it was an editorial dictate, Mm -hmm. but I still look at the dialogue she gave Babs and it's, it's very low quality craftsmanship. Yeah. I I do not, I do not think that this is something that (sighs) certainly long time Barbara fans will look back at with, with pleasure. I do. I have had conversations like our reviewer um, for Batman universe. He does like it. Uh, We have another person on the discord who likes it. I moderate the Batgirl subreddit and we have a couple people who are really sad that this run is ending. They really are enjoying it. So I know there are people out there who will look on this fondly and that means there will be people who pick it up and have a good experience. Mm -hmm. I don't think if you cut your teeth on Oracle that you'll have the same experience. I just think that this isn't going to give you that pleasure of recognizing Barbara Gordon. Yeah. Do you feel like we've been too harsh on it? No. Um, I I really, I, I I wondered if we were biased. I was very biased. I was very biased against the run because it started with Oracle as a villain. And I am Mm -hmm. offended by that because it is taking a disabled hero who was so inspiring. She took, you know, one of the greatest traumas apart from being killed, of course, 
and, and just made it a symbol of hope. Like she is almost, I would say, Batman level in terms of the level of inspiration I get from her story. So that did bias me against the run to start with. But I I wanted to see Jason done well. So I would I would give Jason a lot of extra credit um, in every issue he was in. And I tried to see, I mean, because I, I really like Jason, as we saw in this uh, Birds of Prey issue we covered today. And I wanted to see a chance for him to come back to that, you know, seasoned private eye uh, good guy. And I, I wanted the Joker War stuff to tie in well because I was enjoying the Joker War crossover. So I, I really did try every time to see if I could, maybe this will be the issue I like. Maybe this will be the issue I like. And especially for this last one, because this is the last chance. There's no more chances for you to, to get me to like an issue of Batgirl after this one. Yeah. So I really wanted to, to see this one and like it, and I couldn't. So I feel like I've been as fair as I can be. Yeah. And it's still such a letdown. Yeah. My vow during Hope Larson was, you know, if they're taken from the boss lady, if, if have something or how would you change it? You know, if there's a suggestion, so don't just critique, but suggest an alternative to, and I may have fallen away from that. Um, I feel like my criticisms were well-founded, but I do recognize that I'm so utterly biased and, you know, I have this long history with Barbara. So I feel like I know her as, you know, as well as I know myself. So that's kind of where I'm coming from. So that's why I was astounded when I was seeing these high ratings on the Batman universe. And I thought, well, maybe that is, I really am biased because I'm this veteran reader. And so new readers enjoy it. And I feel like as someone who loves the Batman and Robin film and believes it to be the best Batman film, I feel like anyone can have a dissenting opinion from my own. I'm not going to say I'm, I'm right. Okie dokie. Well, I think it's time to rate it. What would you give this out of 10 bats, the final issue? I really want to give it a one. Um, I think I'm going to bump it up to three because the art was very good and the apology scene was well done, but it is a bad comic. I am I'm so disappointed because I wanted this to be better, to at least end the run on a positive note, and it ended it on a worse note for me. Yeah, Yeah, the art, the cover... The glimmers of hope that I saw of actual true, the vignette, and then that short soliloquy, I guess, that she had uh, on the final page of that first story. And then having all the girls together and hanging out, those are the positive moments. So I would agree and give it a three out of ten bats. That's it. So hopefully my heart can recover. Uh, As I mentioned before, I might look at Batman once that returns. Uh, Maybe I can double up on some things until that happens. But hopefully joy will return into my life and I won't be stressed out as much. I won't be drinking this chemical toxin. (laughs) Okay, so we are now winding down. It's funny because when I sent this invitation, I put four hours because I thought, well, we're doing five birds of prey. We're going to go page by page of the thing. And actually, that was a good guess. So let's see here. We are at the... What? Oh, yeah. Remember, Chris is cornucopia of curiosities. Chris is on sabbatical, so that's why we're not having it. Oh, and also, sorry, go to thebatmanuniverse.net and read Donovan's review. I don't know what it says, but I think it's probably similar. And then It was very thoughtful. I I highly recommend the review. I mean, Donovan's always a thoughtful dude, but he (laughs) – I don't know why you're shaking your head. He's great. (laughs) Um, But I I think he really pointed out, and I think it's good because, as I said, I'm a man of the right, so my political perspective is going to be very different from his. So check that out for a different look at it that I think still makes very valid criticisms. 
Okay. And then I know that Carolyn Coco was on another show called Talking Comics, and they actually – she talks about it. I have yet to listen. I, I did tell her I'm not going to listen until I talk about it on Thursday. So there's another. But, again, those are two opinions that are going to be the same. We might point out different things, but um, I'm not you sure. You should uh, link that in the show notes. Um, oh, yeah, I Carolyn's could, yeah. Go over there. Yeah. Okie dokie. Now, here we go. So first up, we've got our What Are You Wearing segment where Stella basically tells people to put on a particular item of clothing and they listen to me. So, Ian, what are you wearing? Oh! So I'm wearing my Batman Universe TV nice. uh, t-shirt. And I actually, for our literature recommendation segment, I'm going to put on a different t-shirt. Oh, my. Okay. Which is my... Uh, Jane Austen t-shirt. Oh, there it is. So the quote is for, for, can you hold it up again? Yeah. So this is for listeners. The person, be a gentleman or a lady who has not pleasure in a good novel must be intolerably stupid. Jane Austen. Uh, and just for this show, this particular episode, I wore the bombshells version oh. of Black Canary that I got. Oh, nice. Con. So I had to go with that. She's singing and everything, mm. but she, now she has her voice back, so that works out. <laughs> okay. Awesome. Finally, our literature recommendations. Do you have any things that you would, be it comic or book, that you would like to recommend? Yeah. Um, so... Other than the stuff from the mac and cheese uh, stuff, which I all recommend <laughs> that. Um, I'm also rereading Mansfield Park by Jane Austen. Ooh, okay. um, that's one of Austen's darker novels, and a lot of people don't enjoy it as much. But I'm part of a Jane Austen community on the social media platform Quora, and someone pointed out a really great observation. Most of Jane Austen's novels are romance novels in that their central action hinges around the main a hero and the main heroine coming to a romantic conclusion together. And there is a romantic conclusion to Mansfield Park, but it is not on screen. The entire story of Mansfield Park is about a moral resistance to corrupted people by the heroine. She mm. stands against moral corruption and from a place of great um, oppression. She's She has no money. She has no dowry. If she offends the people she stands up against too much, she could end up being almost literally penniless. And she mm. stands up to them when it matters the most. And so it's a novel of moral heroism rather than a romance novel. And I think that's why a lot of people have difficulty with it. Gotcha. Do you know, have I ever told you what my favorite Jane Austen is? I can't remember if you mentioned it when we did our Emma segment. It's not one that people I think would readily pick. Uh, Northanger Abbey? It is Northanger Abbey. Aha! I do love that one, but I love my it is great. romances. I mean, yeah. they're all great. I love yeah. all six of them, and also Lady Susan and the other stuff, but I love oh, all yes. six of them so much. Yeah. Tom, I made Tom read it, and he's like, what is this pop room that they keep <laughs> going to? Poor Tom. Uh, okay, so of course, I always have a list. I now have, unfortunately, exhausted all the libraries that I can get physical copies of the books for the Rory Gilmore one I have left for digital, which is Uncle Tom's Cabin, which I've been like pushing off. So I don't know what I'm going to do. I think I have seven left on my Rory Gilmore's, but it won't it won't happen by 2020. So here we go. Selected letters uh, from 1913 and 1965 by Dom Powell. So it's all about her letters. So if you're a fan of Dom Powell, there you go. That was on the list. Where the Line Bleeds by Jesmyn Ward. About two 
I think there are twins, twins growing up in New Orleans and just the different paths that they're their lives lead. I didn't like that one as much as another Desmond Ward that I just read. The Portable Nietzsche, which, uh, boy, was that interesting. And there were excerpts from all of his writings, but um, you kind of have to have your head on straight for that one. Salvage the Bones by Desmond Ward, I do recommend. And it's about a family in the days leading up to Hurricane Katrina. They know a hurricane is coming, but they don't know that it's going to be as big as it is. And then the aftermath of that as well. So I recommend that one. Oh boy, this lady again, Kristen Hanna, the great alone. It takes place after Vietnam. This family goes up to Alaska and he's a Vietnam war vet and he's been affected negatively by the war and he's actually abusive. So you have that whole uh, domestic abuse aspect going on and then getting used to the wilderness and all that. I recommend it both Chris and Hannah, you know, your heart's going to be ripped to shreds. So just be aware such a fun age by Kylie Reed, which is one of those Reese Witherspoon recommended books, but everyone's enjoying it. I recommend that. And then I finished today midnight sun by Stephanie Meyer, which I do recommend, but only if you're a fan of the twilight. Oh, I'm kind of jealous because I'm still like a hundred people behind on that oh, at no. the library. Yeah. I didn't even know it was coming out. So that's why I'm so oh, far behind. That, yeah. So I put it on hold maybe like September 9th or something. And I just got it in last I'm, week. So I have a, a curious question for you. Sure. Did you read the, um, the life and death where Bella was a boy and Edward was a girl? I did actually. Recently. I actually found that really fascinating. Yes. Yeah, the the gender swapping, all of them except for, yeah, Renee and Charlie. And then she also switched up the ending, but she doesn't tell anyone, so so she has a different ending. But for people who aren't in the know, and it's funny because Tom texted me today a screenshot of, if you're on Goodreads, often with your friends, it'll pop up what they're reading. And so it showed that I was reading it, and he took a screenshot, and he texted it to me and said, really? I said, yep, I'm finishing it up now. But it is basically... Twilight, so book one, but it's an Edwards perspective. And it's been years since she started. I was in college, maybe my second year when she was working on it. And then if I recall correctly, what she had been working on leaked. And then she was just like, you know, you did it to yourself. I'm not going to write any more of it. And then I, she came back and, and finished it up. If I remember correctly, kind of one of those things like you did it to yourselves. Now you're getting punished. But I, I enjoy, I thought it was pretty good. It was also nostalgic. It was huge. It's over 650 pages. So I'm like standing there reading people come up to me and like, it looks like you're about to preach. I heard that several times because there's so many people that pass by me. And then I had to explain what it was. And you kind of feel a bit sheepish, like, oh, remember Twilight? Well, so I'll have to get my literature cred back uh, starting tomorrow with another book. But those are the ones. Oh, man, lots of reading. Okay, Ian, we've made it. We made it to the end four hours later. Uh, We did have a break, though, so maybe it'll be less. Ian, number one, thank you so much for coming on here and doing this with me. Thank you for being patient waiting for us to do that Birds of Prey arc and, and also uh, going through Batgirl 50 with me. Well, I will say that Birds of Prey was worth waiting for. I love that arc and it was great to go through it with you. And if I had to suffer through Batgirl 50, there's no one else I'd rather do it with. Oh, thank you. That means a lot. Can you tell listeners and viewers where they can find and support you? Yeah, so I um, am currently uh, hosting 
the Batman Universe comic podcast on the batmanuniverse.net. I have awesome co-hosts Steph and Theo. I also I'm on Twitter at IBM Miller and I mostly tweet about comics there. Sometimes I tweet about politics, but I try not to do too much because I'd rather not fight. Um, I have my opinions, but yeah. I think Twitter is better a place to connect rather than fight. Um, if only the rest of the world <laughs> thought that. I know. It's, <laughs> it's tricky. Um, I'm also on Discord, on the BatmanUniverse.net Discord, and just hit me up on a DM there. My username is Wedge, like Wedge Antilles, because I'm an old-school X-Wing Starfighter fan. So that's probably where you can find me best for Batman-related needs. So since you mentioned the X-Fighters, have you read that series of oh, novels? Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. Is it? So I people recommend it. Both Carol and I think has recommended it as well as Shag. And there are a number of them. And so, and it also seems like, am I just going to be worrying about fighter pl- pilots this entire time? <laughs> is it worthwhile? It is absolutely worthwhile. Okay. Um the thing about the X-Wing books is that you they were video game tie-ins. Mm. So there was an X-Wing computer game, and they were licensed to, to write these novels. But the writers took it seriously. So all of them have very rich characters and very rich moral dilemmas. So it's not quite the same black and white that the Star Wars movies are. It really delves into the consequences of making certain military and strategic decisions and also people who have to switch sides and what that means for them psychologically and morally. So it's, it's very much novels of characters as well as having some fun space action stuff. Okay. So maybe I will give it a shot now that I'm out of Rory Gilmore's uh, books. Oh boy. Okay. So now I'm going to wrap up. So you've missed it, but you can still go on YouTube and check out my Halloween commentary. That's only on YouTube on the Justice League animated series season two episode only. No, just a dream. Wait, only a dream. I think it's only a dream. Uh, So hopefully it worked out. I guess I'll find out tomorrow. Also only on YouTube later in November, it's going to be Donovan and I reviewing Batgirl 19 and 20 from 2001. And the reason why I'm doing this is because I got myself into a pickle with 200 and the issues I was doing, and I didn't want to mess up the numbering, but I couldn't do things out of order necessarily. So Donovan said you should probably do 19 and 20 before you do such and such. So that's why we're doing it. That's YouTube only as well. And then in December, the 200th episode slash the 11th anniversary, which is huge. Got one guest down, already recorded. Another one's penciled in, and I'm still trying really hard for the third slash fourth guest. I'm I'm hoping. I'm hoping. Remember, you can send any any questions or comments to backworldtheoracle at gmail.com. Also find the show on Google Play, Stitcher, and now Amazon, basically any place you can get podcasts. Like the show on Facebook or follow it on Twitter at backworldtheoracle. And subscribe to the show on YouTube for an uncut version. Follow the Batman Universe on Facebook and Twitter. And support the Batman Universe by subscribing to Patreon. Once again, thanks to My High Comics for sponsoring Backroll the Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. And until next time. Lie on, Babs lovers. <laughs> Just plain Barbara Gordon masquerading for a lark as she rides into the night on her special Batgirl cycle. Who knows? Is the dynamic duo destined to become the triumphant trio? Only time will tell us more about this dazzling dare doll. Batgirl!
love a happy ending, don't you?